TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me once again this week, well, first, he's crossed the desert's bare, man. He's breathed the mountain air, man. Of travel, he's had his share, man. The guy has been everywhere. It's Dan. Hey, Dan. How you doing tonight? I'm good. Also, I drink my own urine every now and then, too. It's easier <laughs> than carrying a water bottle. Well... I made the comment in our in our Facebook page that I am annoyed that in the Better Call Saul auction that the Davis and Mann um, water bottle d- does not come with urine. So why would I want to bid on that? It makes no sense. No, thank you. I mean, when I when I got that bottle of whiskey from Lost, there was something in it. It certainly wasn't freaking whiskey, but it was something. Anyway. Let's get back to the introductions here. Let's let me see what's in my deck. My glasses are a little dirty, so I can't read about it. Burns the skin from my eyes, but eh, fine, I'll do without it. Here's the one you don't compromise. It's Jamie. Hey, Jamie. See what I did there, Jamie? <laughs> hey, it's good to be good to be here for one last hurrah. I don't now. Listen, I don't drink my own urine at any point, um, though I have been known to uh, wag my weenie in front of the Hobby Lobby on a time or two. <laughs> See, I thought she was going to go all Madonna on us and talk about how she does pee in the shower because it helps clean your feet. Anyway, <laughs> so finally, well, you know that old trees just grow stronger and old rivers grow wilder every day. Old people just grow lonesome waiting for someone to say hello in there. Hello, and I'm saying hello to Brian. Hey, Brian, how you doing tonight? Hey, Scott. Hey, everybody. Good to be here for one last hurrah for Better Call Saul. That's right. We have once again reunited this week to do a more in-depth accounting of the Better Call Saul series finale, Saul Gone. And afterwards, we'll probably chat a little bit about... Well, you know what? I could go on for a minute or three about what we're going to talk about afterwards. But instead, I'll just tell everybody, just listen to the podcast right through till the very end. I mean, right until where you would normally hear the, the usual guitar strumming. Because although most of our podcasts for the past year or two have been bookended by the pretty damn awesome music composed and performed by Jamie's husband, Chris, thank you, Chris, for this extra special episode, our own Hagrid Hewlett himself, Brian, has once again come up with something I would say is moodily memorable to fit both the episode and occasion just right. So uh, I've already uh, trimmed that sucker down that you sent me, and it will be appearing at the end of the podcast. Now... Although that piece of music is actually nice and brief. It's a safe bet this overall podcast isn't going to be anywhere near the nice, loose yet tight, wonderful 38 minutes and 44 seconds of our Monday night recording. Huh, thing of beauty. Could have been 35 minutes if I hadn't rambled at the end there. So let's get into it. We're going to take this act by act from the cold open right through the seven acts, and we're going to delve and dissect each one as we push forward, all right? So, here we go, once more into the breach, dear friends, once more with Saul Gone, the Better Call Saul finale, written and directed by Peter Gould. Now, with that cold open, and what I think was a surprise to most folks, despite the fact the promos for the finale seemed to focus on that wrecked Suzuki esteem that we saw last week, um, uh, throughout, throughout the week, 
Um, we end up in a scene we never saw from season five's wonderful Bagman episode. From shots of the car, the foil wrap, even an errant $100 bill. I think this scene really exists for two reasons. Number one, to begin the runner that we talked a bit about on Monday about time travel, and then we'll certainly be talking about it a bit more during the course of this podcast. Um, and also the fact that I'm skipping a whole bunch of things I wrote here because I figured, ah, we've already talked about that. I want you guys to talk. Second reason, and I'm going to pass the talking pill to one of you all after I make this very obvious observation. It's giving us the opportunity to say goodbye to Mike. And in a way that doesn't have either this anger or the sadness that his later death on breaking bad left us with. Okay, so with that, if anyone else here wants to put in their two cents on the open, once again, a definitive non-cryptic one for a change, unlike so many before it, um, it's one that had repercussions that will go on throughout this episode, even though maybe we didn't realize it. Um, oh, there is one more thing I want to say. I forgot. There will be moments I've noticed throughout this episode that feel like echoes from the Breaking Bad universe. Namely... And mainly the final three episodes of Breaking Bad, Ozymandias, Granite State, and Felina. This scene, the fact that they're showing us a flashback, a scene from an episode that we know so well, but never actually happened on the episode, it's kind of reminiscent of how Ozymandias began, where we got a flashback from an episode we all knew pretty well, but it was a scene that was never actually in that episode that we never saw before. That's the one where Walt is making the call uh you know a good distance away from the rv it was it it fulfilled the function of filling in a gap we never actually knew existed but everything about it even the fact that they both have that beginning with the sun and the craggy rock faces of the new mexico desert there's a certain uh the feel is very similar they're both the beginnings of a more decidedly criminal turn in their lives although it seems kind of innocent comparatively speaking so i i think there there's kind of a linking there so with all that said I didn't see who raised their hand, so I'm going to go to the person who was moved closest to the camera while I was talking. That looks like Jamie, so I'm going to go with Jamie. <laughs> it's always me. I'm always the one who's moving. Uh, one, I, I will say the one thing I really do love about um, having this last moment with Mike is that out of uh, all these ghosts of Christmas past that we get to uh, to visit in this last one, He's always kind of the more introspective. Um, it's always great when we get a, we get a moment for him to sit down and tell a story of his past, or you know. And now we're talking about regrets, and the fact that he jumped from December eighth in two thousand one, which uh, I'm pretty sure we're all assuming is his son's death, um, and he changes that to March seventeenth in nineteen eighty four when he took his first bribe because he realizes. That's when he made the choice. And that's when he made the choice that changed everything that came after. And uh, he could have saved his son's life by, you know, choosing choosing better for himself. Uh, and you don't get to see that in any of these other conversations. This is purely a Mike uh, thought process. It, it fits the bill. It's, it's him through and through. Um, I'm so glad, so glad we got to have this last moment because like man that is a that's a perfect scene for his character uh to bid us adieu absolutely go on he took his first he took his first bribe on david god's birthday so i'm thinking maybe god's the one that uh (laughs) is responsible for all this probably (laughs) jeez 
Okay. And there's my first dead silence of the uh, podcast. Didn't, didn't see that one. Didn't see that got reference coming. I, should, I guess I should have. Um, you know, my favorite thing about that little moment was, um, not the crickets, I mean the actual uh, cold open there. It wasn't, it's a weird thing. It's, it's not, you know, revisiting the scene and, wow, they actually found water in, you know, in Mike's story and going back to the bribe, whatever. It's an acting choice. I don't know if it was actually in the script. I haven't seen a transcript to know this, but it feels very... It's like something they came up with on the fly with Jonathan Banks and um, Peter Gould and whatever. Before he responds, before he starts to really go into um, his his answer to the time travel question, you notice he grunts twice? Not just once. He does it twice. He's like, hmm. Huh. It was, it's very deliberate, and I, 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 I kid you not, I rewound it back, and I just watched it, I was like, that's a very interesting tw- uh, choice there, and it's just, and I, I felt like it's almost, especially by having two of them, it's, oh, we're, I'm going to have a real conversation now, I'm really going to think about this now, and you combine that with then his reaction to what, um, Jimmy says later, which is the first of the triumvirate of him saying something, which is like, really? You, you, it's just about the money kind of thing. I mean, it's not what Mike says, but it's, it's essentially what he's saying. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting scene. I, I really, I think each one is interesting for very different reasons and then hit, hits us a different way. Um, but I think it's, it's the Mike aspect and us getting to say goodbye to Mike here, I think is the, is the biggest thing, quite frankly. Well, it's funny cause Mike's like super cynical, but he's like, you know, just, he just can't imagine that Jimmy is so fucking shallow. <laughs> yeah. You, yep. I think, I think the way Mike looks at it and, and you're right, I, I think it's because of this shared experience they're having right now. It, th- if anything was going to strip this man down to some kind of like raw emotion in something, which is as close as Mike is getting. Whereas Mike, I mean, Mike reveals about the bribe. He certainly doesn't reveal what the 2001 thing is, even though the viewers, we know what, what, what he's referring to. But it's still, it's, it's Mike allowing at least some personal insight about himself to someone like, like Jimmy. Jimmy does not do does not do that in turn and he just makes it about uh how he could have how he can make himself into a trillionaire if he goes back to uh 1965 and invests in the the, the warren buffett thing way back when and it's a good callback too to when him and uh when uh jimmy and mike uh briefly uh thought about splitting the money that they uh, ripped off from the kettleman's uh way back in season one right 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 i do remember that oh the kettleman's yeah gonna miss them <laughs> The, the spinoff that wasn't. Uh, Brian, I'll just add that, that, yeah, I just want to add uh, the, the thing I liked about all the runners in this, and, and this one sets it up, is that um, there's a moment of sincerity by all the people in it that, that uh, and at no point is uh, Jimmy or Saul sincere uh, throughout any of it. Um, and these are probably arguably the three most important people outside of Kim that, that he interacts with. And, uh, 
so they they show a moment of sincerity on their path and and he ignores the warning and doesn't get real um and obviously that that was his fatal flaw right well it, it, it it's funny especially when um jamie made the made the the joke about the the, the the three the three ghosts kind of a thing so there is that um almost dickensian quality there you got and you realize that you don't see him learning the lesson in any of the flashes with these characters but by the time we do get to the end of the story the very end that's where maybe you have you you have the Christmas morning and you know how much is that goose in the window kind of moment for him. Only it's you know it's him coming clean in the courtroom. Oh, I like that I came up with the, remember the goose thing. Anyway, okay, let's dive into the first act of this. And when we did, we picked up with Gene bolting out of Marion's house, and even as he's clumsily trying to get into his car and drive off. She's still on the life alert line. She's giving them descriptions, a partial license plate, the car color, even though she doesn't know what the make is. Man, she really wants them to get him and how. And as we watch his mad dash, his attempt to gather some belongings, some valuables, even that box where his stash of diamonds is. And then he's on the run again until, as we remember, he will end up in a trash bin and then eventually caught. And once again, in going to bring it back to Breaking Bad terms, it's a little reminiscent of Walt on the run, at least that moment in Ozymandias, when he's in the house grabbing things, hoping to make use of that best vacuum repair shop uh, card, much the way we see Jimmy was planning to in the while he was in the garbage bin here. So there is a slight callback reference once again in this uh, scene. So that's really, I mean, that's the entire Act 1. It's all really like Gene on the run until he gets caught. Um... I, I was wondering if you, what, what you guys kind of felt about it because it's what I really love about it is we're we're still pursuing a we're watching characters being pursued and you no know, he's not a mass murderer he's not or, or a serial rapist or whatever so it's always been kind of on the quote unquote lighter side as far as Jimmy or Saul whatever um, and and even this is like is about as low key a high pressure chase as you can imagine. You know, we don't really get to experience him zooming around the streets, even the way we saw Walt do on a number of occasions in Breaking Bad or whatever. It's just him, like, going down different winding corridors and paths, which all seem kind of come out of nowhere, quite frankly, wherever the heck he lives there in Omaha or whatever, until he just gets pretty much gets caught when they, you know, <laughs> knock on the garbage can. So I, I, love, I love the fact that the show, you know, even though it's had a few exceptions to that rule in this last season... The intensity, when it does happen, is still always fairly low-key intensity. That's the way I kind of view it, at least. Yeah, they're, those Omaha police, I mean, <laughs> I mean, hey, I bet they don't get that kind of, kind of action very often. And considering that they don't, they were really efficient and they got them. So, good shout-out to the Omaha police. Way to do your job. <laughs> the uh most the the most remarkable thing for me was uh i liked seeing him uh when he's grabbing his stuff you know it's that storytelling that they excel at that you realize he had a whole bunch of those cell phones in his closet the whole time 
And like that's never sort of been alluded to or mentioned, but it's another one of those uh, sort of artifacts of his past that you see he grabs one of those cell phones that, that we've come to associate with Saul at, at the height of his power and Jimmy early in the days. Um, and he's actually fumbling with that when, when he's caught. So I like that callback to the cell phone. And that little nugget that you know that that in that closet basically is the life of Saul. All the all the totems and artifacts of the life of Saul are in that closet. Yeah, and let's say that the the thing that actually ends up you know creating more problem for him than it's worth is that damn placket the plastic packaging you know, that you get around those things. And the whole time you sit there like tearing it, I'm just like, oh, I feel this panic. <laughs> like, Cause that, that, that shit sucks. You're going to cut yeah, yourself. It, it, you, there's no getting into it. Like he should have had some portable scissors, I think. Yeah. It's that, it's that, you know, that bizarro clamshell like packaging that you yes. need to have, you know, a scissor or even like a box cutter or something doing it by hand. And, and as we said Monday or I said Monday, whatever, it's like, dude, Close the tin where the diamonds are. Why? Why? What? What? You, you deserve to be caught. It was chaos. It was a little bit of chaos. And listen, we know that he can plot out bit by bit, moment per moment, every little detail in a plan that he needs to. The fact that he's opened so many of these packages in the in the past, you know, he has. That he didn't just have one already open and ready to go. That was it. I didn't like it. I didn't like it because he has got everything ready to go. He should have had that all in a in a Walmart sack. Fly out the door. All right. I, I, we might be taking the prepare to go thing one step further than I would expect, but okay. Hey, I know we're a couple of sections deep into the finale here, but I actually do have one quick question about events that happened in a previous episode that I wanted to address or really I just wanted to ask your guys' opinions on, you know, at least one or two of you can pipe in on this, if not all three. Um, because not one, but two different folks, one who's a regular listener, one who's an, an actually a brand new listener, both brought this up with me in separate conversations. And it's going back to the penultimate episode, Waterworks. I gave them my opinion, but I want to, since we all, dis- since I disagree with you guys all the time, I want to see what you guys had to say about this. The situation with Jeff in the cab outside the house. And when he, you know, eventually, you know, as he's getting more and more nervous about the cop car behind them, um, then he eventually he pulls away and he crashes into those parked cars. And the cops come over and he happily crawls out and so on. Um, the question is this. Do you think Jeffy did that deliberately as a distraction? Or is he a schmuck whose nerves got the better of him and he simply crashed? I know what how I took it. Other people are saying something different. So I figured, let me see what you guys have to say about it. Because uh, I hadn't realized this was even a point of contention until, like I said, Two totally different people brought it up to me, so I figured, let me see what you guys have to say about it. Uh, anyone want to go first on this? Speak now or forever? I'll go. Thank you. I'll go. Um, okay. Here's my thought process. He did. He did do it on purpose. That's what my initial thought is. He did. He did do it on purpose. But then, I thought about his fall in the mall. And then I realized that him slipping in the mall is really 
you know, it matches this thing with the car. He might have just freaked out. So I I I think yeah, maybe he's a, maybe he's a goon. And he just uh, did a crappy job. He's a schmuck. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I am uh, There you go. I am almost shocked that we are all actually in agreement about this. I I had mentioned the thing about slipping, but then the counter to that was, well, but they also established that that area was, had been freshly buffed and whatever, so one would slip on it. So I was like, okay, yeah, but I, th- I just thought it was establishing something about his character. The point would really be like, I don't believe he would risk himself for Gene, not knowing how the heck he would get out of the situation once he was brought into the police station it would cause just too many complications. I don't see why he would do that. It just didn't, it didn't make, if it was his friend, buddy, maybe Gene, why would he do it? It just, it didn't make sense to me. So it, it, I would add anecdotally that, uh, the further evidence that Jeff isn't the most coordinated person was the first time they sort of ran the, uh, you know, slalom, (laughs) test to see if he could pull off stealing all the items Mm -hmm. you know jeff's not particularly athletic or physically gifted so uh my guess is that you know he's turning and also trying to look at the police at the same time and you know powers through that turn a little wider than he intended and hits that car yeah, I, 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 I just think at this point he, he's been played more comically than anything else, and this is just an extension of that. I mean, everything from the, the, the police eating their, you know, arguing over their fish tacos to just walking over and seeing him just kind of come out of the uh, the car like a big goofball. I, I didn't see it was anything beyond that. Okay, just want to make sure. I just want that, that that's one of the, that's one of the couple of things that's been brought up to me outside of this. I actually heard more from people on the podcast uh, over the last couple of weeks and probably the previous three months. Very strange. So let's get back. Oh, Brian, what else? I wanted to ask a question about the first segment. Sure. Um, and I saved this from the other night, but were you all surprised that the capture happened so quickly? I, I felt that they would have to. Looking at the time frame that we were dealing with, I... I kind of had figured if we're going to catch him, um, it's going to be it's going to be early on because I knew the rest of it was going to have to. I knew the meat of the story was going to have to be in the in in the prison or in uh, a courtroom, as this is underneath all things uh, a story involving law. Uh, that that's where we would spend most of our time. I was not surprised because it's not the same as, say, watching an episode with Nacho on the run. Nacho in a character like that is very physical. And so what he will experience will be of a more physical nature. Um, this be, and since we've already, most will ever have of a physical nature with Jimmy, Saul, Gene, whatever, probably, probably actually goes back to the Bagman episode, if anything else. But 
it's going to be more about words. It's going to be more about dialogue, and a scene and something like that is going to really have to take place after he's been caught. So I figured he would. I figured he would be caught earlier, and then we'll get to see how it plays out. Whether it be through prisons and courtrooms and so on. Um, I actually had a wise ass comment the way uh, along the lines of what Jamie said to uh, someone who may or may not be a listener. Don't give a fuck if he is or not. If he's going to take offense to this, don't care. Um, he had kind of a snarky comment about the finale. Whereas I made a joke a couple of weeks ago, Brian, when you had made the thing, when you had commented on uh, it ended up in a courtroom and he's surrounded by all the different people he had impacted or whatever. And I was like, wait, so they're going to do the Seinfeld finale or something? <laughs> Please, God, no. But then, so, and what they did here was certainly not that. But this guy made a comment, kind of a, a negative comment about the finale going on. It was just, it was basically like the Seinfeld finale. Uh, you know, why did, why did it all have to take place in a courtroom? And I went, I'm sorry. Guess what? You're watching a show about a criminal lawyer. If it didn't end up in a courtroom, then there'd be something strange about it. What is wrong with you? It'd be like watching Law and Order and like, oh, but you know, and it didn't take place in a freaking courtroom idiots anyway hope he doesn't listen because i'm gonna feel bad about it okay let me get into the second act here (laughs) police station we are now at the police station and the cops in the other room they're either having a laugh or they're staring in wonder at the saul goodman ads that are on the laptop he does make his phone call but he makes his phone call to cinnabon um as if he was you know the world's best employee there although he does have to inform them they're going to need to hire a new manager now I noticed in my notes I tend I started referring to him in my notes as JSG, um, and, and even though we can make this observation at any point in the podcast, I might as well just say it right now, even though it's early on. One of the most amazing things about this episode, I think we probably are all in, must be in agreement on this, is we we genuinely see him play all sides. We see him play Jimmy. We see him play Saul. We see him play Gene. We see him play Jimmy again. And, and it's, it's as much of a tour de force for Odenkirk um, as we've gotten. He, he might have had certain emotional moments in other episodes that we've seen, specifically the, in this past season. But I thought this was such, this entire episode was such an amazing showcase of what he invested in this character and how you can differentiate between them and how you see, Oh, we see how the shift has happened. We see how he's changed. You know, it, it, I, I thought, I, I just feel, I felt like I need to compliment it now because I, sometimes I think we spend, we spent a lot of time, how much we are, have been impressed by Rhea Seahorn's performance. We spent time talking about Michael Mando we Jonathan Banks, all the live long day. It occurred to me, I don't know how much time we really spend talking about the main guy, Odenkirk. And I think this episode really puts it there in a way where it's not just... Because it's not simply when he does like the understated thing that we've seen him do in other episodes. Like when he's like when he's been highly traumatized, whatever. The fact that we see the full range, it's all 64 colors in the Crayola box we see on display in this episode. So I, I just think if there's anything, if there's one person who deserves a shout out more, you know, more than anybody else for this episode, it's actually for a change. It is the lead guy. It is Bob Odenkirk himself. So I just wanted to say that now. 
Yeah, I kind of felt that, like, I mean, I'm jumping ahead in the episode a bit, but just, like, based on what you are just saying, it just kind of feels like the final version of him is just kind of, like, a combined version of, like, the different facets of him. He's not, like, at war with himself, like, at all. It's just, like, you know, it's all just, like, there in one. He's just, like, accepted who he is instead of, like, trying to do whatever. And I also claim that he made Cinnabon, and Cinnabon, uh, Cinnabon rolls in the, uh, in the bakery of the prison, but there's no evidence of that. <laughs> Yeah, um, I do want to say uh, with that whole scene and the phone call, uh, it was really great because it, it brought us back to Fring, you know, when he called, you know, he called in like, hey, I'm not going to be there managing the store this week. So um, I've just got to say that this this whole uh, Vince first is filled with um, pretty responsible restaurant managers and it's, if you've ever worked for one, you know that this is great writing because they don't tend to exist in reality uh, at this caliber. So, oh no, they usually, uh, they usually good job. They usually horrible, horrible people. Quite Jamie, Jamie, Jamie's yes. shitting all over yes. me. Fuck Jamie. <laughs> they're, they're like they're the worst. They, they, they are the worst, especially when they want you to do the surveys. Anyway. <laughs> The chicken man. After the chicken man. <laughs> All right, let's let's move this along. I, you know, um, after some oh, oh weirdly, oh, overtly hysterical laughter based on some ass reaming joke etched into the walls of that weirdly creepily small little cell, um, he does get to make one additional phone call. Um, and that's when he calls William Oakley, his former sparring partner from the prosecution, who we know has now gone into private practice for himself. As we mentioned on a previous podcast, perhaps he was inspired, might have been by a combination of both Kim and Jimmy's venture as Saul at the, at the time. Um, I, I did kind of, I accidentally kind of skipped ahead. I, I did want to point out that is an extraordinarily small holding cell. Now I'm not familiar. I mean, I, I see Brian. I see you nodding, and obviously you're not from. Oh, you're not in Omaha, but you're. You know, you're. You are in another state that's not one of these big, giant urban centers kind of thing. Is that is that normal? That it would be that small, or no? That's abnormally small. Yeah. And I would think in Omaha um, they would have a much bigger holding cell in a police station. Now, that could be, you know, just a temporary thing to transport him to a central jail, but that's abnormally small. I feel it was probably something that was just, I mean, I think I don't mean to be, again, I said it last, early in the week, Captain Obvious here. It's probably just something that is designed for the shot to be that. It probably, I doubt that's what it actually, I mean, probably just to repurpose something to look that way. The, the, the way that scene plays out, I love the fact that it's even slight very slight shades of things like Raging Bull or, or Walter White's worst days when he's repeating, you know, this is how they get you, what, what were you thinking? And he's, but instead of Raging Bull, you know, he smashes his hands and his head a million times. He just punches one thing once. Even I could hit something three times before I, I reacted. Um, but yeah, he like I said, he does eventually call Oakley, and I love the line at the just before we the, the act closes, where Oakley asks him, where do you see this ending up? And his res- his only response is, with me on top, like always. So what's kind of interesting about this fairly short act is we are seeing, an in- we see kind of the transition here. Because when this act begins, 
he's in gene mode. He, 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 you know, the way he looks morose on the bench with the phone call he makes to Cinnabon, whatever. But then he undergoes something. His, you could say he undergoes his, his, his transformation, you know, while he's in that little small little cell. And when he makes that other phone call, he is now switched over to Saul. Yeah, and I think if you think of, of descriptions of people with multiple personality disorder, um, a lot of people that, that had that, and there's some controversy about whether it's real or not, but um, at the time it was believed to be real that, that most people with multiple personality have, have one personality that's sort of like the fixer, the protector, and and for him that's Saul. Saul's the fixer. Saul's the the make it okay. So he goes into Saul mode and is trying to figure out the angles and get out. And there's a great touch in this that when he talks to Oakley, he immediately makes it clear like this is not going to be Oakley's case. Oakley's going to ride shotgun with him. Uh, and, and that's a great little touch to let you know like he he's kicking full into Saul mode. Right. Right, right, absolutely. All right, um, I will shift over to um, Act 3 and 4, because Act 4 is so short, we'll just, just pack into the same one. That one begins, he, he's in chains, and he's dressed in what I believe is a Douglas County Detention Center jumpsuit. I did look that up. That, that is what the DCDC stands for when you're in Nebraska, which is where I believe this is still, at this point in time, meant to be. Um, he is led down a corridor. And now we see the mustache and all the traces of Gene have now gone. Um, we can start calling him Saul from this point on in the episode, at least for, for for the most part. He is Saul, Saul Goodman. He is joined by his advisory council, William Oakley. They're seated across from all those DAs and feds and DEA members and Justice Department officials and so on. It's just that little bit reminiscent of Skylar sitting across from a similar row of people back in the Granite State episode of Breaking Bad. And because he and thus we spotted her earlier before they took their seats, Saul does eventually ask that Marie Schrader join them so they can see each other face to face. This is where Marie gets the opportunity to speak her piece about what happened to Hank and how Saul helped, in her words, the two-faced poisonous bastard behind it all. Um, I know we talked about it already in the um, Monday podcast, uh, but even uh, having rewatched uh, at least half the episode myself and thinking on it more, um, having bringing Marie Brack was really a. I don't want to. I don't want to miss. I don't want to overuse a word like brilliant. I would say it's a great touch, and I know some of you had mentioned you had foreseen it. And that's really awesome. I, I, it just, for some, whatever reason, it didn't occur to me until you see her, like, oh, of course she should be there. And I thought she, uh, still in her widow's garb, um, even though since it's in black and white, I'm assuming it's black and it's not some shade of purple, but she was wearing black towards the end of Breaking Bad, so I'm pretty sure that's what she's wearing here still as well. Um, I thought she really killed it. But when Saul spins his tail... And the fact that he has the gall, Saul has the gall, to do that face-to-face to her, which is really something, the more you think about it. And he does that thing where it starts off as truth, but his little dance with the truth quickly breaks apart because he starts to play the victim. And it's something we can't really say would even be remotely true, 
until much, much later in what he claims here. But to the prosecutor with his unblemished record, the point he makes about juries, how he needs just one, it's amazingly enough to reduce that life plus 190 years to something far, far less. And what we learn basically in that extremely brief fourth act, they're going over the plea agreement in which he keeps adding more and more luxury-laden demands until he makes a mistake. He makes the mistake by thinking he has an ace up his sleeve with the truth about Howard Hamlin's death, and that's when he finds out that Kim Wexler has actually beaten him to the punch on that one. So here I, I want to toss it to y'all, because like I had mentioned before, we get a little taste of everything here. We get from Saul Savvy as a lawyer to why on earth would he want Marie in that room with him and then do what he does, which kind of makes him a really craven person, quite frankly. And then the actual shock of learning that Kim followed his advice. So only because she's now, she was, oh, now she's not doing it. She was doing such an interesting side portrait for us there, Jamie. Um, <laughs> Jamie, from the side. <laughs> we, we need to do a video cast one of these days. We'll go. So uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Um, when we have this scene where he is in his chains and he is walking down the hallway and they're leading him into the room, the conference room, um, he walks past that window and that's when we first see Marie because she turns and looks at him and like, I had a, I had an inkling we were going to see her, but something about that shot, the way it was done, it's like they were able to express the surprise and the shock that he probably felt when he saw her, like, there's a familiar face. Um, when he goes into his, you know, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. I had a gun to my head. Um, we have watched him from Jimmy to Saul to Jimmy to Saul. We've seen him in Breaking Bad. We've seen him in this. We've seen every version of him. And yet, somehow, even knowing that this was scripted, there was just a moment that I believed what he was saying. That he was backing, that he was backing away just a little bit, that he was showing a he was showing his belly. And I don't know why. But he, he was able to trick me, even just for a second. Um, so when he goes when he goes from that position of being vulnerable and then immediately turns it like, I, I just I just need one. Man, yeah, it, I was I was floored. And, and how how when we when we know everything about this guy, how is it still that they can write this where you. Just you always just want to see the best in him, and then he reminds you like, eh, I've always got tricks up my sleeve. The uh, I, I love that scene because uh, you know I'm just going to go on record and say that what he was facing is ridiculous, and what people face every day across America for crimes is ridiculous, and to see him whittle it down. I liked um, maybe seven years is less than he deserves, but he, he did not kill those agents. Uh, you know, he was miles and miles away. He did not want anybody to kill those agents um, and to pin all that on him when everybody else is either dead or got away seemed unfair. So to me, the equity in that room 
uh, was a little unbalanced, and to see him balance it, uh, I, I enjoyed. I do not think you know he's innocent, but to see somebody be so smug and uh, him to throw it in their face, uh, it was great to see the only man in chains in the room with an act of defiance unsettle all of the unchained people and make them wonder. And that's the beauty of what that's the beauty of what he could do at his best, and that is defend people. If we go back to early in the you know early in the show when he was doing the the public defender cases on contract, is he could come up with something to fight against the power of the state for his clients, and in that moment he does it beautifully for himself. Uh, so I mean I enjoyed it. It, it was a great touch to have Marie uh, because she's the human face of all the damage from Breaking Bad mm-hmm. that he caused. I mean, all the government people can him and haw. They, they weren't personally affected. She was. And for him to see that and invite her into the room and then say that. Um, and, and as we said, his, you know, some of the best lies have a whole lot of truth in them. And what he yeah. said had a whole lot of truth in him. In it, and you know, the first time he did meet Walt and Jesse, he had a gun to his head, and uh, so it was, it was a beautiful action uh, of his what he did, um, and I think that there's a couple of moments where he sort of pushes Bill Oakley aside, and I think Oakley in one of those moments kind of looks at him like what the hell, and then in one of the other moments looks at him like oh my god, is this working? Uh, which I think is is brilliant. So I love this scene. Uh, it's Saul doing what he does best when shooting from the hip and being confronted. And, and so I loved it. And I, I, I am like Jamie, like, you know, part of you wants him to win, but you know that he can't. But it's nice to see him doing something he's good at uh, in that moment. So I, I, I love this scene. Yeah, well, I, I definitely enjoy him being, you know, being a, you know, a, a huckster and uh, pulling his magic and stuff. But I don't really find it to be laudable, even if they were dumping a bunch of stuff on him. He was, you know, just being smug and arrogant, especially towards the end. And, you know, he's doing his thing. But I think, I mean, the the version of himself that confessed to, like, you know, how he would, you know, push uh, Walt and Jesse and stuff at the end was 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 more authentic. Oh, I mean, it was like it was the truth. He's just being a liar here and trying to do whatever. So, I you know I understand what you're saying, but I was not impressed with him uh, in uh, as a uh, you know a, a moral upstanding citizen uh, at all in this uh, scene. Well, and I think that's what brings the that's what that's what brings it home when we do get to the end and we do have the confession in the court, because the last time we, we, we get to hear him tell his side of the story is this. So we don't think he's going to go in there and he, we don't think he's going to go in there and he's going to be honest and he's going to be real. We don't see it coming, even though in storytelling, it seems like one of those things that you would, you would see coming because you're, you're looking for the redemption. Um, But they were able to really, distract you from that with this last little bit from him and the reality check of he can spin anything he needs to he just has to find 
one one place to hook in and he can pull the rest in that's just that's what he's always been able to do if he can get his hooks in at one spot um and he just he would always use it for you know shady shady purpose in the in the last half of of the story so yeah um you don't you don't necessarily feel for him it's fun watching him play the game um, because there's so much talent in it, so you you have to have some some awe in what he's doing. But it it was uh, incredibly important to give us the relief at the end. Right. The the the, the point of the scene is never. It's in in fact, it's the exact opposite. It's not supposed. It, it, it it's supposed to be telling you he is not a morally upstanding person. He is doing yeah. the opposite of that. He is, do- he is He is doing, up until a certain point, he is doing what Saul Goodman did. This He's spinning a lie with a little bit of truth mixed in. I would take issue even with one of the earlier, you guys said a little while ago, um, there's a, the, the amount of truth that's in there is, is small, not large. He wasn't fearing for his life for all that... Once that coughing happened and, and he started putting money, started going into his pocket, the fear left. He was, he was scared for maybe seven minutes. Um, yeah. And the story he spins see, but, out of there. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, what? but there were times after that where he was genuinely afraid of Walt, you know, Walt. Right, but that was not days later and it wasn't weeks later. It was considerably, right. it was an entire season pl- and a half later. He wasn't, oh, yeah, he wasn't afraid so, anymore and, of him. And he, he, and he spoke to... as though he was fear, in his fear for his life from that point on. So he's, no, he, he's but, telling a lie. Yeah, but there yeah. was an element of truth to it. I mean, not it wasn't like he was afraid the entire time, but the relationship between those two was. I mean, it was you know that there was a constant. He's talking th- about the very beginning of it and towards the very the end entire, of it. He began. He began off talking about the whatever, but he was talking about the entire relationship they had. It wasn't just talking about one day, right? Like but that, the, but the that, thing that like happened at the end was literally the end. But he was, we don't, he was you don't get that till season five when 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 Walt says to him it's over when I say it's over. That's the first time he tries to stop anything in the final season of Breaking Bad. So season three and season four, he's right along with it. So most of the he, ride remember, is not a problem. Remember where you are on this because it's actually what you just said, Scott, is really important to tie in on some thoughts that I had when we go back mm-hmm. to our flashback with Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, the Something else, and this might be my own personal experience, um, the the amount of time we've had since we've got to see Marie and the Schraders and, and Breaking Bad characters. Now, there's plenty of us that have done rewatches, multiple rewatches since it's aired. And for me, she is a character who, my first run, I could hardly stand her. I just couldn't. I just, it just, just was too much all the time for me. Now, when I went through and I rewatched it, my thought on her and my sympathy and my empathy for this person drastically changed. Knowing where everything goes towards the end and seeing where it is in the beginning completely changed um, how, how I felt about her and, and her family, honestly. So when I see her sitting there and listening to what he is spinning, And there's just this little moment, this little, it's not softness in her face. It's not softness. It's not, 
it, it, it's not forgiveness. It's nothing as close as that, but this just, she remembers Walt and she knows what Walt did to the love of her life. And there is a moment he catches her. He catches her for just a minute where you almost see her go, he's right. I suddenly, I, I know who he's talking about. I know how frightening this is. He's a horrible person. And he's able to push that guilt and distract it over to Walt enough for her. And, it, but, but it doesn't stop. He doesn't stop it there and just let it be that way. He checks out of that personality spin and then like rubs it in her face that she just listened to him. And the way her eyes shift from that place of like understanding what Walt was capable of to the realization that this guy in front of her, she can't trust him either. Like it, there was just something, this little play that she does with her face that was, um, there was so much emotion behind just this little flicker. And I loved getting to see her bring that to the table, especially when you know, the first half of her character writing is so like yeah, rough. It's so rough. So beautiful, beautiful moment for her to get to have um, some beautiful shots she was involved in and such a poignant morning, like moment in uh, the emotional storytelling as we're about to spin this and wind this down to an end. Right, right, right. But but the, the issue where where we feel for him is they intentionally shoot this scene where you see 11 million people on the side of the prosecution and like him and his lawyer on the other side of the table. Like it's so clearly weighted against him. And when they first open up the discussion, the prosecutor mocks them. And, you know, it, it starts off from a position of being like, you want to talk, plea? don't be ridiculous. Um, so that's why some of the sentiment in the writing, you lean towards Saul because you see the visual representation of the weight of the entire government and its resources uh, and the way they initially react to him proposing something with disdain uh, that you start off going, I'm willing to listen to him, that you don't dismiss him because of the way they do it. And that is what's brilliant. And that's why you, the audience as well, want to hear what he has to say, because they have set this up visually in a way that he's all alone on one side of the table with Bill Oakley. And there are all these agents and her and everyone on the other side. And, and that's why uh, I think it's powerful. And having been in that situation personally, um, even if your client is very guilty and you know they're guilty when you sit down and to be mocked, the I, I teach lawyers this all the time. The only power a criminal defendant has in the criminal justice system is to say no, is to say I'm not taking a plea, I'm going to trial, you know, no, because everybody wants a plea. Everybody wants you to say you did it. Everybody wants you to just be gone and it to be over. The one power you have is to say no, gum up the works. And Saul exercises that power here. And yes, it, is he a good person? No. But do we see him being you know, outgunned? 
and desperate in a corner, we do. And I think that's why we, the audience, are listening to him and, and, and hearing him out. And it is interesting that even though he's like totally outgunned and outmanned, like the second he realizes that the other that the main the lead prosecutor on the other side has never lost a case, he instantly realizes that he can exploit the fuck out of that thing, and he does. And it's just you know, so I, I will agree that it, it is cool to see like you know that even that even when he's been laid low and he's been kind of on a downside for a while, he just like poof, he got it. Uh, I'll. During the last few minutes, I, I would say like three things have occurred to me about the scene. Um, number one, uh, one major function of the scene and why we, not just why we have Marie there, but it's also, um, them going over the, the numerous potential counts against them. It's because unlike those of us who may have just done a recent rewatch of Breaking Bad, everyone else, the, the idea is that people have just been watching Better Call Saul all this time. It's a reminder of what he did as Saul Goodman on in those years on Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. And whether he and yes, he might not have been a person to hold the gun or do anything of that nature. He was a chief operative and played a major part in what became a drug empire. He's he's the last remaining living key figure there. That's why they're gonna, and he so he's the one person they can go after, and that's why they're going after him. But it's also, but it's more, it's a reminder to the audience, like, okay, you've been loving him as Jimmy McGill, and you were seeing the little bits of Saul here and there for the last five and a half, whatever, almost six seasons now. We need to remind you if if you didn't if if we didn't if we didn't ring your bell enough. At the at the tail end of the previous episode, where he was looked like he was about to kill Carol Burnett, then we're gonna let you know all the really fucked up shit this guy has done. He's not a great guy. We need to remind you about that. That's number one. Number two, you pointed out the thing about how having all those people seated uh, across from him, and it's just him st- sitting there. And yes, while Oakley is there, it's essentially it's him against this entire row of people. This is a setup shot we have seen them do on both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul a number of times. And, mm-hmm. and that it's we've seen it over and over. It, I love that. It's it's almost it's almost like a I don't want to call it a trope and I hate using that word for the show, but it's something we've seen. We we it doesn't matter if you're um, Jimmy or Saul or Skyler or Gus Fring, who's been in a seat like that, or Walter White, who's been standing somewhere like that. It, we've seen it happen time and time again. And it's an interest, and it's kind of going to what you were saying, Brian. It's, it's something, it's set up in a way that even if at the moment we might not be, um, approving, shall we say, of the actions that have been taken by whoever that single person is, you still find it's still a compelling visual and it's almost almost like a subconscious you subconsciously side with the the one against the many there until you know regardless of being what the actual acts are that they end up having to defend there the third thing what was the third thing i've talked so much i kind of forgot what the goddamn third thing was <laughs> oh i remember now i got it lastly because uh, I, I didn't get it, we hadn't touched. No, no one's touched on it yet. Other than, other than Jamie, I think you you mentioned the turn, which I think is the thing in the entire scene. Beyond everything, is the turn of the the one. I just need one, and the way he does it, and it's it's done 
in a very quiet way, not like the way he normally goes about things. There's a something there's a, there's something about his delivery of it. To me, the way he d- goes about that little turn there, he's still Saul Goodman. I'm getting that, but we've always talked about characters kind of take on aspects and elements of other characters. He's done it. Walter White's done it. Everyone's the little Walt there. It's a little Walt there the way he yes, does that. Yes. And you can and I can and, and I can sit back and I can go to any number of situations we've seen on Breaking Bad well where he'll do that where you know you think you've got him and then all of a sudden Walt will be like you know, we everywhere all the way down to you know Walt you know, going all the way back to Walt pulling out that little thing in, in front of Tuco's face before he smashes it down and blows the place up. It's that little small little turn. I it's my favorite thing in that entire scene. I mean, I love the scene all together, but it's like, oh, and that's when you realize, oh, it's he's a really bad, he's a good guy and he's a bad guy. He's a really bad guy. I love that. Part. But but it makes me want to go back. You saying that makes me want to go back and watch the scene and see if there are twelve people in the room, if there are eleven federal agents <laughs> and her, because when he says, "I just need the one," the one he got to was her. <laughs> well, I mean, now I'm like, were there 12 people in that room on the opposite side of the table? That would be pretty ingenious if there were. Well, technically, I I agree with you, except for one thing. The one he he didn't get to her. He, there might have been a glimmer, but at the end, it's just you, you can't possibly be. He got he got to the one that he needed to get to, who is the prosecutor. Because he's the guy who makes the decision for them to make the deal. He's the one who's been shaken by this. That's the only one he fucking needed in that room to make that deal happen. Marie, we see her marching out angrily because she, she can't believe they're going to actually go through with it. He's the one that he changes, whose mind he yeah. changes. I kind of viewed this scene. It's like it's like the you know, of course, the episode takes a different turn because of Kim being a factor. But this is this this scene itself is kind of like the Better Call Saul version of Wall killing the Nazis, where just like you know, he's using his legal powers to like you know, pretty much take out take out his uh, adversaries, yeah. and that's that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's a cool way to look at it. Um, I would even go as far. You know what? I'm gonna wait a couple acts, and then I'm gonna go right back to what you said. And it'll it'll be a ooh, it'll be beautiful. Dan will be oh it'll, it'll be so amazing. Wait for it. Act Act Seven or Act Six. I don't forget. But we're in Act Five right now. There we go. Because we dip back into the world of color, and it's an almost colorless world. That room that we saw under the vacuum repair shop, where of course Walter White is having issues with a hot water heater. Hey, look. It's a callback within a callback because true Breaking Bad fans can recall Walt having issues with a certain hot water heater at his own home. And here we're revisiting Jimmy. Well, actually, it's Saul. And we're revisiting his question about what if you had a time machine? Now he's doing it with a seething and somewhat humorless Walt, of course. He you know, might as well be talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson with a swarm of bugs up his ass or something. Because Captain Literal over there can't fathom the idea of something so scientifically impossible as time travel. But as we had said, I think, uh, Monday, Walt is at least keen enough to know that Saul is really talking about regrets. And to Walt's credit, give him some credit, he does allow himself to be slightly human when he brings up the gray matters situation. Although it is a reminder that although human, 
he's not exactly humane, Walt's regrets are still lined with resentment and rage. And in fact, that is what spurs his return, as we know, to Albuquerque in the Breaking Bad finale. But this is Better Call Saul, not Breaking Bad. And the true crux of the scene is Saul's response and what Walter White says about it. The words that cut deeply when put in the context of the Chuck and Jimmy relationship from years earlier and the scene we're going to have a little bit later in this episode. Now, before I go any further into this rather dense and pivotal fifth act, I felt, based on what I just mentioned, without saying whatever, I thought I might throw this back to you guys. Because I just I thought this scene was kind of significant, both in terms of the time machine regrets runner of the episode, as well as the, you know, the firmest Breaking Bad connection that we got in the episode overall. So if anyone would like to... Oh, you know what? I'm going to take the person who just waved at me. She's probably waving me off, but I'm going to make her talk anyway. Because <laughs> you look like Peter Pan tonight with the hair and the green, whatever. So... <laughs> <laughs> There's worse things to be. There are worse things. Trust me. <laughs> okay. So I. this is why I raised my hand to get in there first. You know what? Maybe you guys have had this epiphany before I did. Maybe I'm slow to the roll here. But there was a moment when Walt looked at Saul and said, you've always been this way. Oh, so you've always been this way. I suddenly realized why Saul was so deeply attracted to the idea of working with Walt. And that's because Walt talks to him and treats him like Chuck. And I was like, I don't know how I missed this. I don't know how I missed it. It just seems so blatant. There's so many conversations that I can all of a sudden start flashing back between him and Walt and him and Chuck and this desire to prove that you've got the goods and that you can be, you can outsmart that you can do this. And just to constantly get this feedback. That's like, yeah, but I know what you are. Uh, yeah. I'm not impressed. Um, and again, it goes with this, this, the, the theme of, of regret and time travel and what would you change and all of these, these, these little, um, these little tips in there about uh, the choices we make and to, to realize We've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about codependency things between he and Kim and Kim's past, but I feel like we we missed we missed a very large portion of this when we consider not just what happened with him and Chuck, but with him and Walt. We like Chuck better. Chuck is a more stand-up guy. Chuck does more beneficial things for the world. Um, Chuck is often write about things with Jimmy. He's, he's not, he's not a, like he's missing everything. He, he's, we said all the time, he was right. Just like Howard was right about everything. But we always defend Chuck because of those things. But this is also the same guy that never, never told Jimmy that their mother's last words were, were asking for him. Like he held that the, and that, that is such a that's such a Walt jerk thing to do like that. Just that little upper hand, that little power grab that you can hold on to and know you always have that. So getting that moment um, was huge for me to all of a sudden go. And, and it, even though I've, I've rewatched breaking bad a few times, it, that alone was like, okay, now I got to go rewatch because I want to go back and see every scene with these two men together. 
right. Yeah, I'll 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 leapfrog on that and just say um the the amazing thing about the Chuck Walt connection astute that you point that out, Jamie, is um what what Saul Jimmy wants is somebody to work with as an equal and to be viewed as an equal, and he's yes. never really viewed that way. Um yes. Because there is a Walt without a Saul. There's not a Saul without a Walt. Yep. Yep. And just like Chuck, I mean, Chuck wanted didn't want him to ruin the McGill name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's an astute observation for those reasons. Right. There's definitely, they, they share, there's, the fact that he would probably be someone who craves respect from both of these uh, obviously learned men who, you know, experts in their whatever fields they're in, um, and neither of them respect him in that matter. Chuck certainly didn't respect him as a lawyer. Everything he said um, about Jimmy and the law um, indicated that. And in, in this very scene, when... Um, when the gray matter situation is brought up and then Saul realizes, Oh, you know, if you could have brought that to me, you know, Pat and he starts, and it's like, I wouldn't go to you. I wouldn't use you as my lawyer. Yes. Yes. Cause it all goes back yep. to let's go to Jesse in the car, but Walt before they hire him. It's like, yep. you want a yep. criminal lawyer for what he's talking about. Like, no, I would just want a lawyer, <laughs> an honest lawyer, a lawyer, maybe like Chuck, but not a lawyer like Jimmy or Saul at this point. And I think there, there, and if I recall the scene, there is that, even if it's just a glimmer, you tell me, there's a certain, just a little bit of hurt in Saul's eyes when Walt says that. Because even, yep. at, even at the very end, he's still, no matter how much of a hand he's played in all this and all the things he's done, even at this point, he still didn't have the respect of this man for what he did, for what he was capable of doing because he was only seen as you know this this shyster who was you know helped them squirrel away money or launder money or whatever but didn't view him as anything you know bigger or better than that. So that's when he, so when he makes the comment like so you've always been like this by saying this is like this meaning something that you know like you know garbage you know pretty much. Yeah, it it was um, both a lot of fun to get to have that scene and and to go go back there, have the throwback, get to see Walter again. But it was also uh, for me, it was it was a pitifully painful moment uh, because it's just a reminder of how many times this this cat just tried to scratch his way through uh, the opposition of like you can't do it, you can't do it, you're not good enough, and you're never going to be good enough. Right. Right. No, and and and, and I, I think, and and one can say, and 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 I would even agree. One can even prefer the other moments that are part of this runner. You know, the Mike moment or the the Chuck moment we haven't gotten to, and I totally understand that. But what I find interesting about this is again going once again going to the line of it's you're always like this because it's the one that goes directly to Jimmy's origins. And we yeah. don't even, and it's almost regardless of the, the Chuck scene that we're going to get later, 
We still know that despite Chuck's better efforts to direct him otherwise, Jimmy would continue to go down the path that would ultimately lead to him being in that room. And now I know one can say maybe if the Kim relationship had remained, he wouldn't be there. And maybe, you know what, maybe that might be true. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, without having that tether, this was a kite that was always going to blow the way that it did. So that, that's why it, it's almost like he, he couldn't get out of his own way. And, and, and that it, it was, it was uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, Inevitable. Yeah, thank you. Thank, wow, can't use the word. I can, couldn't even think of inevitable. Well, that's really bad. I'm not I'm not even drinking tonight. What's wrong with me? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it, it's it, you know it, it's you know it's a it's, it's a soul fulfilling prophecy. I don't know. All right. <laughs> well, it's like you're always like this. I, I mean, I think what he's really saying is you've always been broken. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So l- let's. Let me get back to the fifth act here and back to, and when we do that, we go back to the land of black and white. Casal is now airborne with a federal marshal. And William Oakley, he's just trying to relieve his bladder to poor guy. And this is where Saul finds out more about Kim and her situation and the fact that Howard's widow, Cheryl, is actively shopping around for a lawyer to levy a civil suit against Kim. And this is the part where Saul makes it sound like, hey, he does have more info. And it's something that might put Kim in a much bigger jam than the one she's already in. And with that, with that talk of Kim, we do zip over to Florida. And we, she, we see she's having lunch with those Karens there <laughs> at work. But it's clear that she's pretty preoccupied the entire time, as if the her moments in Albuquerque from, uh, you know, weeks earlier have been weighing on her, you know, her past life tapping her on her mental shoulder or something. So as a result, she leaves work early and she ends up volunteering at a local legal services facility. And later, while she's there, she does get a call from that DA that we remember from earlier in Better Call Saul. Um, I think her name was like Suzanne Erickson or something. Um, and I, we we don't hear most of the conversation because um, we, you know, they, I love they've been doing that for these last few episodes. They keep stepping outside. We don't need to hear the dialogue. We we just can gather what's going on just from the visual. It also saves time on script writing. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> We know it must be about Saul and, the, and their expectations of what he's about to testify about. So, with the, with those moments, I'll, I'll figure out throw it to you guys again. Is you know, especially now that we've reintroduced Kim back into the storyline of this episode, um, was there anything that kind of uh, you felt was like worthwhile to comment on here? Oh. Wrong button. <laughs> no, appropriate button. <laughs> I'll start this time and say it was a joy to see Kim doing the work she was called to do. Um, that when she was in that room with the woman, uh, and then later, you know, after hours, you can see she stayed there. The sun's went down and she's worked quite a while. Yeah. This is the best version of herself, and to see her get a taste of it was was a great was a great little piece uh, of uh, satisfaction for me. You know, I was yeah, absolutely, yeah. She and she wasn't working with other, 
you know, anytime we see her in the past kind of trying to do the same sort of thing, she's always still sort of around a group of attorneys that have a name, that have, you know, have a building, you know, they, they, they're a little bit on a higher tower. Uh, and she gets to just to get in there with someone who like literally it's just roll up your sleeves and get to work. Just just find something to do where we need your help that much because this is how needed our services are. Um, it it was awesome to get to see her go from the the mundane like drag out scenes we had of her working in you know in her little office and all the sprinkler stuff. Um, even though she would bring integrity, I you know to any of those jobs she was doing, she'd do her job to her best ability to see her take all of that talent and that passion and just sit where she belongs, which is in file cabinets and making phone calls and just doing all of these, these little things that people don't realize change lives. Um, she, she, she was where she probably should have been her entire career. Well, it's, it's once again, it's Kim Wexler starting over. Um, it's vaguely reminiscent of when she quits uh, the law firm and she goes to the uh, the, the public was it the public defender or whatever to go through the files and pick out all those cases and it's it's so th- in a way it's kind of it's kind of like that because that was that represented her starting a new path and starting over as does this that was her switching from you know, the kind of law that she was dealing with that, that was not fulfilling and didn't feel like she was really helping the people she she wants to help. This is just her getting back into law to begin with. And it is starting from a place where even if all you're doing at this point is, like you were saying, making phone calls, getting files prepared, whatever, but you're doing it for the people who need the help the most. So yes. it's, it's very kind of an interesting echo of that. Uh, and I, I, you know, and I'm like, Oh, I was like, I was rooting for it. I was like, Oh, does this mean you're going to change your hair again? Or were you originally, maybe you were originally a brunette. I'm not really sure. Anyway, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit, it's, you know, it's a, it's a lack a of like, uh, yes. And it's a bit like what Jimmy maybe should have been doing when he started developing Saul uh, and and working with the 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 lower criminal base that he was working with um, because he had a line out the door because those people needed him. They needed somebody that saw things through their eyes that didn't treat them like a criminal when they needed help. Um, and so he and Kim have always been made of kind of this similar stuff, you know, that's where their connection is. Like, that's why Kim could see him with clearer eyes than somebody like Chuck or somebody like Walt. It's, it's this, it's this part. It's the field work. It's yes, he's clever. Yes. He always outdoes himself. Like you said, he's always, he's always getting in his own way, but at the heart of things, this is where they both belong. Hmm. He likes doing the work, but it's about his ego. Exactly. It's That's not it about her gets, ego. Right. It all gets in right. his way. I, that part I do agree with. Um, yep. Um, my, count, my unintentional counter to that, I mean, I, I understand. Look, I don't, we've talked about the, the relationship between Kim and Jimmy since, you know, for, for the last four or five years. I don't, I'm not going to go through all that all over again. Um, but about him and his practice of law and how he relates and how he works as Saul Goodman, it's, 
I would love to say it's kind of a lot more along the lines of, 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 of what, the way Kim is, but it's not, in my view, it's not. Um, it's more like he's one of them. He's yeah. one of them. Yeah. His yeah. past, his slipping Jimmy past specifically, <laughs> it was someone who was involved in a number of petty crimes, misdemeanors, probably got away with some things that would have yep. would have been escalated a little bit further. Whatever. Had it not been but, for his brother. And, right. And a lot of the people who are marching, I mean, yeah, there might be some, like, drug things, whatever. There's no one accused of murder walking into salt into, into the no no at least no. not that we know of. These are no. not those, that's not that that waiting room is not are not filled with those. They're filled with people like Spooge. <laughs> yes, <know>? yes. <laughs> you know people, yeah. and I and I always thought that was how he kind of worked his magic, so to speak. You know, between his his flashy, ridiculous commercials and the fact that he could walk the walk and talk the talk, he was one of them. You know, yeah, he's a snake charmer. He's a con man, you know, and, and probably a lot of the people he's dealing with have, have had some grifter qualities to them as well. So it, I, I, that's, you know. Well, and for tit for tat, since we love talking that way, uh, for tit for tat, uh, Kim and her mother were probably in a similar place for the people that she's helping represent at some point in time. Because we, what little flashes we get are just meant to make assumptions. Um, but there's a part of Kim that knows about being on that side too and needing a yeah. chance. It, show, it shows that Kim has an un, definitely can relate and has an understanding for it. And, and what it what what absolutely what the, sometimes the one thing that's that the one thing that separates somebody from success and failure it failure is just somebody giving you a chance to prove yourself, just one little chance. And um, that I think that's to be more to be more definitive. I think that's where the common bond is right there. That's the commonality with the two of them is that they both very much embody that idea of like everyone just needs that chance. Right. Well, and and they're not really in the ruling class. They're they're blue collar sort of people. And that's their background. That's where they come from. And I will. I'll say later in the episode, like he's accepted by the criminals as one of them. Um, we see clearly on the bus later, he is one of them and they accept him that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's going to totally bring that up later. Like, see, there's my point, motherfuckers. <laughs> so let's, um, you know what? Let, let's get to the good stuff here so we can we can all uh, pipe in on this one. And it's Act 6. It's it's the act. I won't even talk about it too much because I'll leave it to you guys to talk about it. Because this is where we have Saul Goodman being led into court. And despite all the varying grays that comprise all the images in this world of black and white cinematography, the shiny, iridescent quality of the suit and patterns on that tie make it unquestionably a signature Saul Goodman yes, outfit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and I'm going to say yes to a question that was just asked offline and back to, to this. Among the people that we see in court. Ooh, I love inside baseball jokes. Inside Marie and even Gomi's widow Blanca are seated in the, beyond them. Seated in the rear is a visibly shaky Kim Wexler. And before Saul addresses the judge who has questions about this sweetheart of a plea deal the government has agreed to. 
One must note he does once again say that all that jazz line, it's showtime. Something yes. we heard him say all the way back in the second episode of this series. So when he steps to the podium, he starts to tell that same story he told before his plea deal that we saw earlier in the episode. You know, that galling one he had the nerve to say right to Marie Schrader's face. The lie with just a hint of truth mixed in for flavor here and there. But when he hits the crossroads of that story, he suddenly veers off, a left turn away from the road we have ridden before. Perhaps now he's not taking bad choice road. Perhaps... Not something stupid either, but by admitting something something unforgivable, it makes him somewhat, perhaps, redeemable. Perhaps because, much like the transition from Gene slipping back into Saul, we see another step back here as Saul fades away into someone who did have a heart and conscience. He becomes Jimmy McGill once more. Did you notice all the titles I just slipped into that paragraph? Anyway, yes. so... I <laughs> Now, I there's so much more I could say, but I'd rather hear you got your guys' voice for a change. So I'm going to leave it to y'all to get into the nitty gritty, and I'll just uh, parry back and forth as I see fit. Well, let's first of all talk about something we kind of uh, jumped in on when we did our our react. Um, one of the things that we do see in this scene is we're going to get a copy of the time machine that shows up again. So we talked about that a little bit. Uh, saying, you know, haven't we seen this? Like, we've seen this before in other scenes throughout the show. And there are two other times we do see this book. So, the the one other time we see it is in Kim's apartment. Um, it's at the bedstand. It's on his side of the bed on the bedstand. And then it shows up again at the end when the FBI is taking everything out of the house. So when we've got the house clearing, Kim's apartment, and then now. So we've seen this book three times, which I thought was interesting when we're going back and recounting, you know, three different people from the past. You're, What's ta up? you're talking about the book that we're going to see in the Chuck scene, aren't you? Yes. Okay. All right. Just because we haven't gone, we haven't gotten to that yet. Okay. Go oh, I thought that's where we were. See, now we're all lost. <laughs> <laughs> Courtroom. We Courtroom scene. Courtroom okay. scene. My apologies. I thought we were already in the Chuck scene. So <laughs> make a note right there. Perhaps the book traveled backwards in time to that scene. It did. <laughs> it is the time machine. The time machine is traveling through you know, time. It's because there's that moment in the scene where we're reminded of Chuck, but the exit sign. And yes. so you chose yeah. you chose to exit the I, act and move I back. I just so. exited the entire realm of reality, <laughs> and I played it out the way I wanted it to go. Yeah, so, 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 Jamie, if you had a time machine and could go back in time and change one moment on this podcast, <laughs> would it be that reference to the time machine? No. <laughs> nope. I'm literally going back like I'm going back like about one. one I'm gonna and a half go back three years when out. I get a call and was like, "Hey, do you want to join in on this podcast?" And I'd be like, what? "Nope, nope." <laughs> the uh, the the courtroom scene is brilliant because it it is everything we want to see of the past and the present combined in one scene. It's and like you said earlier, Scott, it's it's the change right before our eyes from Saul uh, and to becoming the new version of Jimmy. And 
the transformation that Odenkirk undergoes in the scene is amazing uh, because the first half you're wondering what the hell is going on. And um, it, it's remarkable. Now I will say most of the stuff was uh, pretty good. A federal judge letting a person keep talking after they told them to shut up. Not very realistic. A federal judge would call someone down and have the marshal take them into custody and remove them from the courtroom if they didn't shut up and probably hold them in contempt. But I understand dramatic license, drama. Uh, but it, it's a brilliant scene. I like that there are not a million people there. There are just a few people there. Uh, it, but Kim is all the way in the back, very subdued. Uh, and he's looking for her. And um, I'm reminded... It, when I watched this, it, in a weird way, it, it was dramatic, it was serious, but it, it, I, I, I almost wanted like them to run into each other's arms. It was like a classic. Uh, it was like a classic love story. When he after he makes the turn and you see what he could have been, that there's just extreme amounts of sadness but but at least you see some growth um you see her realize what he's doing um and knowing what he's giving up to make sure she's safe and protected and it, it's it's a remarkable scene but mostly as you said we haven't given Odenkirk his due for his transformation before our very eyes in this one scene uh, between two characters and uh it's wonderful. Uh, uh, it was very touching, very emotional, and probably th this this scene is the heart of the episode. Well, what you were when you were saying with the performance here, uh, Brian is. I did send a message to you. I think that when we were watching that, when he when he walks in and he turns and he looks behind him. I didn't see any softness or any, you know, foreshadowing of what was about to happen in his in his face. He looked probably about as menacing as I have seen him uh, in the entire series. There was just some a shadow that ran across his face, and um, I, I again I didn't think we were going to go where we were going because he just came in just looking like he was he was ready to to make the kill. Like it was 10 times more intimidating than when he was going to maybe consider choking Carol Burnett. Um, and, and I had sent that message to you like, yeah, this is, he is just so menacing right now. So when he was able to go from this, this angle and just holding his body weight, um, just, he, he like literally shifted his weight in his shoulders and just these little touches and his performance that completely, you, it was like, it sounds cheesy to say, but it was like watching him exercise the, you know, the, the soul of Saul, just leave him and like be who he really, truly needed to be. And, and to just let go of this baggage, like his shoulders just became lighter and lighter the more he went. And then just to kind of touch over on Oakley, it was fantastic that these writers, even with all of this confession and this, this peak 
emotional moment could still slide in these little bits of humor when Oakley was like, I want to be excused from this case. <laughs> like, he just wanted out. He's just like, I'm out. I'm done. This is nuts. Um, so they had this little three ring circus, but it was like, it all like funneled down into this very streamlined honesty that was delivered to Kim. And then we go over to, to Ray's face and she is, she's taking all of this in, but her face isn't, she's not emotional. It's, it's like at first she's just waiting for the catch. You know, when we were watching Marie get hooked in and you watched her eyes change a little bit where she's really starting to relate to certain aspects to things. We're not getting that because she, she's, she's waiting. She's going to wait till the end before she shows any cards. And it isn't until she realized that he really just did. He, he just did himself in, in a way he's not going to back out of it. Now everything is there and he is being as real as he's ever been that she softens just slightly because Part of her also knows, like, oh, crap, he is going away forever. <laughs> like, So she relaxed just slightly. And this just, like, very muted tone of of relief that, that everyone starts to sink into. Um, it was, it was, it was beautiful. Um, yes. I, I, I do... The only thing I ever want to caution, and I should have done this on, on, on a number of previous podcasts, I think I probably mentioned it at some point, um, we, and I don't just mean the two or three or four of us, just people in general often, um, we will tend to read what we want to read into performances of silence. And if you ever listen to actors, male, female, doesn't matter, either way, they will sometimes enjoy the fact that people read this into a performance or that into a performance. When I said that's it's it's whatever you want to see there. That's not. Uh, either, I remember going back to the days of Lost and everyone going on and on about the, the the look on Libby's face at the end of that of an episode of Lost or something. And when the truth of the matter was like, yeah, that's what you think I was thinking, but it's not what I was thinking. But we all read what we wanted to see there. And I think we're, we've, and so when Brian, when you talk about face acting sometimes, because we do it, so, especially when someone has a, just a face with a lot of character, like, like a Jonathan Banks, or when someone's doing a performance the way Kim is in the scene here, um, we're reading what we translate the scene and what it must mean to her. I'm, again, I'm not saying any, everything you might, might have said was probably very much 100% correct, but I'm just, but I just, I, I'm kind of enjoy, I think actors even enjoy that because it's like how everyone, you know, 100 people can look at a painting and come up with 100 different opinions of what it means. Um, when someone is giving a, a truly silent performance, it's just, you know, as again, face acting. Uh, yeah, and, and by the way, there were hand quotes for people out there. Uh, <laughs> that's, it, it's also designed to, okay, we it's a vessel and we fill it with what we perceive that the character should or must be feeling in this moment. So I, I, I find that to be somewhat interesting. The interesting thing with this whole courtroom moment and his uh Saul slash and then and then Jimmy's uh confessional, if you want to call it that. And oh another gigantic button on the wall. Um hold on while I'm talking. You're done. There we go. And um it's when he's talking about Chuck. The biggest thing he confesses is a thing that wasn't really an actual crime after all. 
And that's the thing I think that cleanses him. Um, I, I am reticent to say he's redeemed by what he does here. I would say it's the first time I feel he's maybe at least on the road to redemption because there's just, there's just too much. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's a great scene. And also, Brian, when you mentioned, <laughs> and of course, and so you, you don't, you don't even have to have a legal expert here to know, like, I'm pretty sure that's not the way it would go in a courtroom. But we can also be honest. If you were to look at the top 10 great moments in film and TV history in courtrooms, I'm pretty sure all 10 of them, like, yeah, I don't see uh, that f- that a few good men scene really playing out that way, or that witness for the prosecution scene going that way, or even you know the kill a mockingbird. Really, that could really go on that way, you know. So I I, I like the f- the fact that for a show that loves to ground itself in reality so often, and that applies to both Breaking Bad and this. As crazy as the show gets, it always, but there always seems to be a very grounded reality with all their plans and all the things they do, that they can still go and have something as heightened and just over the top as this, and we don't really think of it that way as we're watching, because we're so invested in the character and what this moment means, not just for this episode, for the entire series, and I, I, so that it's it, it's it's the key moment of the episode, if in the series overall, if you want to look at it that way, I think. the The great thing about the scene, to to touch on what you said, Scott, was almost everything in the courtroom was realistic, except for Saul, and he's not realistic anyway. It's it's like he's a surreal character, no matter what, even in a realistic setting. Like Oakley is realistic. I mean, if you were a lawyer, you'd be like, "Hold on, Judge, we need a recess." If, if. <laughs> now, I brought up the legal expert thing, obviously referring to you. So, I actually have a question for you. This one is something else brought up by a listener. Uh, no, you're not. What? Uh, okay, go ahead. Oh, did, did someone else want to say something and their audio keeps going in and out so I can't tell if they have to talk or not? So, nope. Okay, I, I will proceed then until someone tells me otherwise. Um, another listener, I'll, I'll mention by name since I'll, he was the guy like a month ago. I said, doesn't even listen to the podcast and I got called out online, you know, the following week. Actually, I do listen to the podcast, jerk. Um, uh, Josef Fortunado was, had a question. And it's about Kim's legal situation after this, because there seems to be an overriding sentiment from people talking about this episode that based on what Jimmy does here, this pretty much gets Kim off the hook as far as, well, it would be her the, the, the civil suit and, and everything uh, on top of that. Um, I don't know that that's, Number one, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think it, my personal opinion was, I think it makes proceeding with those things a bit more difficult with this confession on the record, but it doesn't absolve her. It helps her, but it doesn't absolve her. So I guess there are a lot of people who are saying it, it does. It, it's, he saves Kim. It's like, I don't think he saves Kim. I think he helps her. But I, I said, let's talk to the guy who actually knows what the fuck he's talking about in such matters. So 
you and you've watched the show, you know, so you know everything that she and they've talked about the stuff that the, the issues that she has in her legal whatever. And we saw what you did here. Am I right, or is there more to it that I'm not seeing here? What what what's your take on this? You're right. There there are a couple of considerations. One is she voluntarily gave up her bar card, so it is accurate they could not suspend her. Uh, I mean, if if you quit practicing, they can't, you know, suspend you from the practice of law. So she voluntarily gave up her bar card, and we know that. So that's accurate. Now, to reinstate her bar card in different jurisdictions is different. She may just have to pay a fee. After a certain period of time, though, she might have to go through a character and fitness review um, and the problem with, with her situation, there's only one pesky problem, and that is she gave a sworn affidavit under oath to the prosecutor, and the contents of that could be disclosed, and in some states may be disclosed, and you might have a mandatory reporting requirement. Uh, some states, you have to report misconduct if you're aware of it, of, of a colleague, of other people in the bar um, some states are more strict about that or not, but if that affidavit is turned over to the bar, um, you know, there could be an investigation into her character and fitness to get her license back. Uh, so, um, I'm not saying, you know, how that would turn out, but I don't think she's scot-free because she's given a sworn statement about her activity under oath. And if she were to go back on that, um, that would either, you know, be lying under oath or she would have to probably present an affirmative defense like duress or something to someone to explain why she herself said she engaged in highly uh, unethical behavior. So, but, but, but with all this, does the Howard's widow, Cheryl, can she still move forward with her civil suit against Kim? Does what Jimmy do, do here change that any or does it just make it just a bit or can she still pursue it but it just makes it a bit more difficult because of what he has put on the record that that's one of the things that, because that's what can impact because if she wins a, a suit against kim no matter what kim does she's basically paying this woman for the rest of her life so like that was kind of i think one of the major it that, that that's the thing that pushed him to do this in the first place because it's him it, hearing about that is what it's prompts him to say all that stuff on the airplane. It, it's complicating uh, because they could still sue both of them, and although he's in prison, there's a, you know a doctrine called joint and several liability that you collect from whatever defendant you can get the money from that that you're both liable for it. And they were married, so you know they could they could sue him and her. And only collect from her while she makes money if they win. Now, she could obviously claim as a defense what you know he says in that in that final sentencing hearing. So he helps her, um, and you know he almost presents to her the the same scenario that he presented to the prosecutor that she could use the defense against him that he used against Walt to Marie. Um, that it's, you know, that it was him all along, that he did it. He's the bad guy and they built him up as the super bad guy. So it would be tough to back away from him not being a total piece of shit compared to her, uh, when the case went to court. But, you know, there's a couple of things that help, uh, um, 
you know, Hamlin's widow, and that is Howard's widow. One is that, uh, you know, the standard of proof in a civil suit is, you know, more likely than not. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and you have joint and several liability. They were married when this was happening. Um, so, you know, their liability would be joint. And because of that, either of them could be attached, you know, if there, if a judgment occurred. So, uh, so it's not over, but it's complicated. She's not scot-free. I have one crazy idea. I'm not saying, I'm not saying this is definite. It's just people seem to like throwing out minor crackpot theories with this. And we've heard them in the last few weeks. So. Why not have one, even though the show's already over? Crackpot theory is this, that the final, the scene that takes place the latest on this series was not in this finale. The scene that takes place the latest on this series was the first scene of this season. Because remember that the, the all the people that were taking all the stuff out of that Saul Goodman mansion... They didn't have outfits or anything identifying them as being FBI or any other governmental agency. We noticed that, which seemed very strange at the time. And you had, I believe you had even mentioned about it could possibly be some sort of like forfeiture from, you know, from a lot. We don't, we don't need to repeat that. It could be Cheryl. And this is, and this could be from the civil suit. And then it got directed. And ba- so basically, okay, you killed you killed you, you killed my estranged husband, and now I'm going to have your golden toilet. <laughs> it just again, it's it's a very, we noticed it was a very strange choice not to have them wear jackets and identify them as any sort of uh, authority, which seemed strange to me. But if they were working on the behalf of this, like you were saying, like a civil, like a forfeiture of this nature. Then it kind of comes together in a way that we hadn't really, and it, it doesn't need to be addressed in this episode. I just like the idea, like it's obviously we don't know that for sure, but I love the idea. We don't not know that. So, well, uh, it, it, here's the thing that I think could support that very easily is he's on the run, she files suit, and gets a default judgment against him because he doesn't answer the complaint. Um, and you know, as a result of that default judgment, which he won't answer because he, if he answers it, they'll find him and he have to appear in court that they go ahead and, and get all this stuff to satisfy the judgment. And then Kim years later, I mean, after the fact, if the judgment's satisfied, she won't, you know, she can't be sued again. They probably were sued and his assets may have been enough to cover the cost. He's just sparing her the criminal liability. Right. So that is a possibility. Okay. Interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. No. Hope everyone enjoyed our little you know, our little legal sidebar segment of the, of the podcast. All right. So, let's get into the final act. You know, this this is the act that Jamie uh previewed for us in this act. <laughs> Where You're we, welcome. Where we complete the triumvirate. No, it's going to be funny when you're going to repeat everything you said all over again. Uh, we complete the triumvirate of the flashback runners that started with Mike, continue with Walter White, and now goes even further back before Jimmy met either of those two men, all the way to his brother Chuck. 
And it's that line that Chuck has, which is what lays the groundwork for the time travel question, for the idea of regrets that Walter White pointedly uh, pointedly points out, which is a dumb way to phrase it, um, is what he's really asking. It's where it all goes to. It's if you don't like where you're heading, there's no shame in going back and changing your path. Not to be confused with Don Draper saying, if you don't like the conversation, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, but in, in almost the same breath, because of Jimmy's reaction, it's the realization that we keep having the same conversation. And what's the poignant, sad thing about this is, even though we saw in the waning days of their relationship before Chuck's passing and everything and the things that Chuck said, which, and we can, we debated back then, was this Chuck lashing out or did Chuck actually feel this way? Was it a sentiment he had for years or for whatever? We can go back and forth on that. But when you see a scene like this early on, you realize there was some parts of Chuck that be- wanted to believe in him, that wanted him to be able to change the path that he had he had gone on, and his unwillingness to 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 see that and to act on that then and look where it led him. So we can go back in time and once again, like Chuck was right, Chuck was right, Chuck was right. <laughs> um. So th- this is the scene where we also we, we saw the Time Machine book again, which is what um, Jamie was referring to uh, before. So, Jamie, before I go any further, um, I know that you were citing the times that we had seen the, the, the book and, and what it signified. Um, and I, I don't know if you finished your point on that when I pointed out we weren't up to that scene yet. Did you want to kind of do a little rewind on that? Was there something what what you wanted to well, point you wanted to make here about this? We we saw it three different times. Um, so we see it here when he's with Chuck, and then we see it again when he's living with Kim, uh, Kim's apartment, and it's on his side of the bed, um, on his bed stand, and then we see it again at the end when his house is getting cleared out, reclaimed, possessed, whatever is, whatever is happening there that you guys were just speaking of. So we're seeing the three different, like major, uh, chapters in his life. This, this book just keeps showing up. So since we saw it in Chuck's house, it's safe to say that that is, um, something that Chuck would probably read from or pull from a lot. And so I was just kind of looking at some of the, you know, some of the the sentiment in the story and some of the things that are said or how things are worded. Um, and, and there is a lot to it where um, it's, it's, it's kind of funny that that's what they use because there's a lot of discussion about how the time traveler is very clever and though at surface he seems like he knows things you have to know why does he know things and what is his what's his intention behind the the things that he's putting out there and um it just it it's so suiting to all of the little things that we hear chuck say to 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 jimmy at the you know especially in the first season um when he pulls in you know quotes from this and that and and tells him like this is the kind of man you could be and this is why law is important and these are the things you have to look out for and this is why 
I'm worried about you. And then that attitude kind of shifts, you know, as we know to more and more and more, like you're never going to change. And I, I never liked you. <laughs> it's just this very harsh, like we just, this is never going to work. You're never going to be who I see what you should be. Um, but getting to, to go back to each of those scenes where the book was, was kind of fun. Um, just seeing those, those three separate chapters and then getting to have the story told in the way that we do in this, in this final, this final episode of going back three different times and in his life and finding out who these other people uh, were under the surface and what their biggest regret regret was. And it was just a really fun play on the theme of the entire episode. Okay. Quick question then. Whose book is it? I think it's Chuck's. See, I disagree. Really? You think it's Jimmy's? Because if it's Chuck's book, that's in Chuck's house then it burns up with everything else. I don't believe the book would survive the fire that happened. But if... That's possible if he doesn't take it out with him, or... He doesn't take it. Nothing leaves that house. The house there is also the possibility that it's another copy, but I don't think that they're going to, you know, assume <laughs> that we think it's another copy of it. Yeah, I don't know if Jimmy would attach importance to a random paperback his brother was reading. As opposed to it being his own paperback that he had lent his brother. So, again, I don't know. I'm just sure. I, I'm just putting sure. it out there. Because it occurred to me that we see it at his house, and I realized... Well, no, you bring up a good point with the fact that it could have been destroyed in a fire. For for whatever purpose it may be, to me, it very much seemed to have the that, one, I just naturally assumed that that is something that Chuck would have and pull from. Um, see, I don't mean to with, cut you off. With Wells, you know, with H.G. Wells. See, uh, but... Uh, I could see Jimmy too. See, I mean, I could, I could see it because it's the idea of getting, getting to do things the way you want to do them. I yeah, and I think, see, I think otherwise because Chuck is a man of logic and law, and that's his bookcases are lined with law books and things of that nature. He hasn't struck us as someone who would be who would give in for more fanciful fictional accounts like an H.G. Wells book, I can see Jimmy having been that way. And people, especially, sit either be close friends or siblings, lend each other books all the time. So I... I and, and, and who is it who keeps bringing up the time machine concept anyway? It's Jimmy bringing it up. So, again... It, it could be either one. I mean, I'm sure I'm, it's probably supposed to be Chuck's. It's, but in my mind, I can absolutely, I can absolutely, positively see all the connection that would make it belong to Jimmy. I just feel I it's think more that the, the I think that either it, it, it maybe it's just what I want it to be, but it's like the thing that he carries around. It's the talisman of of the one thing. It's the one thing of Chuck's. It's it's, you know, the one thing that belonged to him that he respected and saw and felt from, and I could see him reading from it um, to try to pull something from it that would be him. Hmm. But, okay. again, this is kind of going back to what you were speaking of earlier when you were talking about these actors know what they're doing and leave it open for interpretation. I think this is one of those things that could clearly go on on either path. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. See, there's no. I don't think there's a wrong answer. I think it's just how we're choosing to interpret it. I, and you know, I, you know, I think we could. It's the kind of thing we could, we could, we could ping pong back and forth and probably make an equally compelling case either way. The only thing I, the, my my only trumping thing in the whole thing is like, house burned down, book gone. Does he buy another? Does he buy I, the same paperback? He might. I, so someone I know borrowed a copy of mine. She might listen to this podcast. Oh, who cares? Uh, it was like a 1973 paperback I found for like a quarter of the book Animal Farm. It's one of my all-time favorite books, and someone borrowed it for me, and she's never given it back. And I actually went on eBay about, I don't know how many months ago, and I went and tracked down that specific copy from 1970, because I wanted the same exact one again. And I got it, and I got it, and that's back. I put it right back on my bookcase. I'll probably never read it again, but I just wanted to have it again because it meant something to me. So I could see, say, it was, so that would actually uh, bolster your perspective where it was Chuck's book, and maybe it, and perhaps it even did get burned in the fire because it looked like everything else did. But he still might have went out and just tracked down the same book again because it was something that he that was a connection to his brother and and, and going along the lines of what you just said. I don't. Want, I'm not going to repeat it. You know what you know. What you said. And I do. I do. It, think it could go either way. The, I think one of the biggest reasons why I I clicked into the idea that it was Chuck's too is because I think it's already sitting on the counter when Jimmy walks into Chuck's house with his tote and his cooler items and stuff, and he kind of looks over at it, like. Like it was already in place when he came in. Right. So I just, I think I just generally thought, oh, it was already sitting there. It was, he, it belongs to Chuck. Well, I, I think the book itself, if the runner about the time machine is about a runner of regrets, the book itself represents his regrets of Chuck. And that's how we see that. So when we have the moment in the courtroom when he finally says what he says about Chuck. And again, this is something he's played around with even this season, even like the scene with Cheryl a few episodes ago. Um, and he talks about Chuck there. And again, that's him using the truth, to, but for his own purposes. In the courtroom, it's him using the truth as it's the truth, and he's, and he's using it for a more noble purpose than he ever had before. Because he's trying, he's trying to, he's, he's finally, we've talked a lot over the last six seasons of either, it's usually been when he's quote unquote Jimmy, Jimmy does the wrong thing for the right reasons, right? Here, here he's finally doing the right thing for the right reasons. It's, it takes a story which for, 61 and two-thirds episodes has been a tragic story, much the way Breaking Bad was, even though very different, whatever. But, you know, because a character who doesn't learn from their mistakes and continues to make them is, is by definition, that is a tragic character. The fact that he does, they gave him this moment where, again, it's not, it's not Scrooge. He's not totally like, you know, but it's, it's it's on, it starts him on that path that path that Chuck made that reference to in that earlier flashback, and it's that little even though he'll be in prison for the next eighty six years with good behavior who knows, uh, it's it's still oddly it it's oddly a hopeful or positive ending because like you guys were saying either you want to say he's at peace with himself 
or he's accepted or, or he's finally become the best version of himself where maybe he's taken the more positive or appealing aspects of those other personas like the Saul or the, or, or even the gene, whatever. But at, at his heart, he can go back to his actual name. He can go back to being James McGill or Jimmy McGill. doesn't matter if all the inmates call him Saul. We know that he's Jimmy, you know? I, I just want to I'll throw my two cents in. You guys had a good back and forth, but I'll just say I, I believe it was Chuck's book that he gave to Jimmy, hoping Jimmy would learn a lesson from because basically the basically the story is, you know, mankind doesn't learn from its mistakes and, and it, you know, ends up extinguishing itself. Um, that's one of the lessons, uh, you know, in the book. And, you know, by the end, uh, you know, Jimmy finally learns the lesson. I think Chuck tried to teach him and we see those scenes. He's trying to crack the code with everyone and they all get it, but he doesn't, but he finally does in the final scene. And I think that's why Chuck is mentioned because, you know, the, the lesson Chuck was trying to impart by him, they, they clearly couldn't talk about issues like that. So I think he gave Jimmy the book, hoping Jimmy would get something out of it. And, you know, finally, Jimmy got past the superficial to the real meanings in the book. And I think Chuck, you know, Chuck's the final puzzle to uncrack, you know, cracking the code for Jimmy. And like you you said something earlier, like maybe he's not redeemed, but he does do the most important thing to start that path. And that is he finally takes full responsibility for everything. See, this, this should be the part where someone like, like, like Dan should pipe in. Well, you know, in episode, you know, two, seven from, you know, there, you're forgetting there was a scene where Chuck clearly hands the book, you know, to Jimmy that you should read this. So I don't know what you're talking about, Scott. It's clearly Chuck's book and he lent to him. By the way, that's the most obvious thing to, to count, to, to counter my, but the house burden, like, yeah, he, he gave his brother the book. Oh, okay. You should read this. Learn something. Oh, okay. God damn. Yeah. I'm just saying, if one of them had a copy of War of the Worlds, this would be a five-hour-long podcast also. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way we're going, it may very well be at that. Cause we haven't even finished the episode, much less all the other stuff. But that's just the way I knew it was going to be a long one, so who cares? Because we're on the bus now. Jimmy's on the bus, and the realization that despite shedding the skin of Saul... That's how he's going to be seen by everybody else, especially the inmates at, hey, guess what? It is ADX Montrose after all. And we get that great sing-song chant on the bus. <laughs> it's so amazing. And we also get a peek of prison life as he's putting his Cinnabon baking training to good use. Um, Dan, you were... So, were some people saying he's baking bread and you're saying he's baking giant Cinnabons? Is that what, what you were talking about earlier? I just kind of was hoping that he would be making cinnabons or cinnamon rolls of some kind in the bakery because they're like, you know, you'd have skills to do yeah, so. why not? Oh, uh, you know, it might be like a special Sunday kind of thing that they would allow him to mix in some of that yummy cinnamon stuff. I don't know. But I, I, I would like to think that they would let him do that. Um, but we can see that him, his prison life, that inmates knowing him as Saul Goodman might not be a bad thing after all. And then we get the final scenes with Jimmy and Kim. Now, let's all keep in mind, 
This was our biggest focus of our Monday evening podcast. We've already talked about this scene a lot. But that's why I'm not going to go over it again. I'm going to leave it to y'all if you have any other additional observations that maybe you wanted to make about it um, that maybe you didn't get the chance or you didn't think of on Monday. Um, you know, I, I know we every, we were adoring the, the look of it, you know, the, the noirishness of it, the whole thing. Um, and we can pretty much take this through the scene with them in the room to the final scene of the episode in the prison yard. Um, and that's how it ends. It, they do choose to go outside the interrogation room. That, well, not the interrogation. Wherever that room would normally be, where they meet, where they meet with their lawyers or, or whatever. Um, and I know Peter Gould had actually spoken about that. Had, that they had considered ending it earlier, but then they decided it, he wanted them to be outside and and you know have that separation between them, whatever, because uh, having ending it with them together would leave it with an implication that he didn't want the viewers to be left with. Um, so I th- and when he said that, I was like, well, that's very smart. I didn't think of it that way. But you're right. If you, if you end this, sh- if you end this series with the two of them together smoking, regardless of the fact he's 86 years or whatever in prison, it implies that it ends with the two of them together to whatever extent you put that, you separate them outside you do it that way, and her leaving, you know that is not going to be the case. She may very well visit him once a year or something, but that's not where this story went. And that's the way, uh, I think that's what they were trying to tell us, and that's why, the way I took it as well. So, the the rest of the episode. Um, does Peter Pan want to talk about it, or does someone else want <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll throw it in. Um, I think we had, you know, we like you said, we kind of covered this when we when we did our reaction. But the 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 moment in there when they're together before they're separate, they they don't really have to say anything. They never have been a couple, uh, either as friends or a, as a romantic couple that had to say a lot uh, to get it to understand. And I loved that the last thing we really had of them truly saying something to each other um we we had jimmy just put both of his hands over her hand and it it was really subtle there was there was no like intention for the camera to just catch it alone it was just this very subtle quiet moment where they got to exchange the the reconnect and forgiveness and i think that is the biggest thing because they they weren't just forgiving each other it's not like they you know she wasn't forgiving him for being an ass after the divorce papers he wasn't forgiving her for leaving they were forgiving themselves with each other um so they could be separate so that they you know yes he's in, he's going to be living in prison and she's going to be off somewhere else outside of prison but they are they are allowed to be separate like their past can and their future can separate now um because they've forgiven themselves and when they just they have that moment where she turns back and looks and the little finger guns are there you know it's just like the like we still got each other like we are separate we we are we're moving past this part of our life but we still got each other so i truly believe that 
you know, yes, she she may come back to visit, and, and he he'll he'll get visitation from her occasionally. He's not going to be forgotten about it. Christmas card is going to be sent. You know, there's there's going to be some connection there where they keep showing up in each other's lives somehow. But I think they're both totally okay with letting go of whatever it was they had because they they're truly respecting each other now like they're not defending themselves from other people they're not focusing in on somebody like howard they are just truly two human adult beings with adult brains um living in some sort of catharsis that their past is their past the the beauty of it is that he wants somebody he just wanted somebody to accept him and after mm-hmm. all the horrible stuff he did and now knowing, like, you know, he confessed to everything he did and took responsibility, she came back. She didn't berate him. She didn't judge him. She just she just stood in the space with him. And, you know, they, they smoked a cigarette. And uh, there yeah. was something really human about that, about just them allowing to be. And in a way, after that moment, like you said, Jamie, they're both sort of free. Uh, even though he's in prison, there's a sense to him. He's sad, but his body's different. And she'll come mm-hmm. visit Jimmy. She wouldn't. Yep. Come, Saul's dead. She wouldn't come visit Saul, but she'll probably no. stay in touch with Jimmy. I know. I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess I agree. Um, although... If you if I was if someone else told me that that is the last time they ever see each other, I would believe that as well. There's sure. there's a reason. Again, I did hear this over the week from the guy, you know, Mister Gould. Um, they chose they had they had shot it one way, and they chose not to have her finger shoot back at him. Mm-hmm. That was for a very that's very again because it would impl- if she had done it back. It applies that okay, this bond is still there and whatever. By not doing that, it makes it a little bit more sad, and it's kind of like so. It it almost signifies like okay, this this is goodbye. Again, she could still come back, but it's also okay if she doesn't come back. It's because they just they in my the way I look at it. I like the. We love both these characters. We both whatever, and we love to. And I want to imagine that you know at least once a year she would pop back, whatever. Regardless, maybe she'll have pictures of her future kids and that 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. But from a storytelling, almost, and this is a show that we've always talked about having a very cinematic quality to it. If I look at it that way, and. You, no one can deny the cinematic quality of these last uh, minutes of this episode. I mean, we talked on Monday about the very noir-ish way it's shot and the feel, and it had almost a classic Hollywood feel to it as well. Well, in a classic Hollywood sense, then this is the end, and this is where they go their separate ways. Um, so that, I want in my heart the the... I want to believe that they still remain in each other's lives, but from from a, a storyteller's point of view, from a writer's point of view, however you want to refer to it, from a Scott point of view, whatever, <laughs> I kind of want to think that no, that's it. 
they, that was that and that last look is the last look. I just I, I to me that's the way I I, I don't know why I choose to, to 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 go with the more tragic way to end it, but it, it just for me it feels more fitting to what I had just sat through, both with this episode and all the episodes leading up to it, that. They did get to have this one last moment of, as you were saying, almost mutual forgiveness of themselves, even more so than for each other. But that's that. Now they move on. That's so. That's the way. Um, that's why they show them being separate at the end. It's them. It's her moving on. So that's the way I choose to. That's my. Yeah, that's why I choose to interpret. Dan, showing her turning. Showing her turning back and looking at him, I think, is about the most significant part of that entire thing. Finger guns or fences or whatever. I mean, she didn't have to turn around and look back. And I think that that says something. It doesn't say that they're like, you know, hey, we're going to have some, you know, jail romance or whatever. But I think it says something. (laughs) Well, I think, Scott, what you're talking about as far as a storyteller goes, I think that there's definitely something into this this ending, this having not like an open end, but some open ends to it for storytelling purposes, having this be the last time they're together and this being the goodbye and them being on equal terms and being very sad about it, but prepared and, and willing for it to be there has a bigger heart and a little more flash to something that has been very unflashy. Um, when we ended Breaking Bad, it was like a really like spectacular flashing end. There was like a really high peak of excitement. And something Saul's always had that wasn't so much of the, the theme in Breaking Bad. It's just this very low-key, slow movement. And this, what they're doing on the outside still fits that low key slow movement, but emotionally that swell of this is, this is goodbye forever is, is just, there's more dynamic to that. However, if you um, read any of the interviews with, with Ray, she, she's this, this same, you know, the writers have their own intention. She said, but for me, when I was walking away as Kim, I knew I would see him again. Like I walked away knowing we would never have what we had, but we were always going to be there for each other. But she also added that I am a hopeless romantic, so it could all just be garbage. But this is that's how she felt when she was playing the role, that she would see him again. Uh, it's open to interpretation, and uh, it's just the way I view it. But, I, I, you know, again, you can ask 100 different people and probably get 100 different uh, takes. I love a finale that allows you to do that. So I have no problem with that. It's one of the things I really adored about the end of this uh, episode. There's a few questions I wanted to end the podcast with, or get into the final segment of the podcast with, I should say. Uh, And my first question is a bit of a softball. So we had six seasons of Better Call Saul. Basic question, we can go around the room. Was the sixth season... And it's great when you have a list trying to say a phrase like that. The best one. Or maybe you might pick the fifth season for that. You know, incredible five-episode run that they had at the end with Wexler v. Goodman, uh, JMM, Bagman, Bad Choice Road, and so on. But you can go back to season four bringing a slow, or season three had the downfall and eventual departure of Chuck. 
first two seasons are certainly enjoyable, you know. They built lightly on one another. But I think the show really starts to, to hit its stride in terms of greatness from, like, season three on. Um, but do you guys... Would season six be your choice, or, or would you go back one or two for what you think the best season of the show was? Um... Only because you were just... Ta- I'm, I'm, I'm going to hit one of the boys first, and then I'll bounce over to you, Jamie. All right? Um, Because so, I can't see him, I'll ask him first. Just turn on your microphone there, mister. There. What do you think, Dan? I actually haven't uh, really... Uh, even though I just watched all of it, I haven't really rated the seasons. I, I guess I wouldn't... Uh, while this season has several uh, very strong episodes... Um, I'm not sure uh, I can pick a uh, which season I think would be uh, my, my personal favorite at this point. Okay. Uh, you know what? You all, all three of you should say have a version of the answer like that, actually. That'd be really funny. Make me look like a fucking moron. Brian? Gee, those are the uh, I lied. <laughs> I, I love this season. I don't know if it's my favorite. My favorite had been season five. Uh, this might overtake it. I can't say right now. Um, if I had to pick one right now, I would go with season five because the we still had so many parts in motion that this season took out of play. Uh, you know, because it had to, it had to have resolution. So I think you know, sort of the excitement of all the balls up in the air being juggled in season five and the way they did that and the way it was handled. I would go right now, probably with season five. Yeah, Petey. I would. I would say that for all all of the same reasons that Brian just put out there. Um, right now, I'm going to go with season five. I could go in and do a rewatch and change my mind, and it might end up being season six. But as of right now, um, short of you know two episodes this season, they were just like whoa. Uh, as an entire season, I think I think five stands just just a little bit higher. Right. Um, I'm going to actually agree with that sentiment as well. Obviously, with a season just ending, and there's also a fear of what, what we always call it. What is it? Recency bias that you don't want to yeah. you don't want to you don't want to just automatically pick the thing you just watched because you realize oh you might step away whatever number of weeks or months, look back upon it or rewatch other things and realize, oh, I don't, maybe I don't feel the same way about it. Um, I think for me, it's season five because that was the season where everything just really started to collide in such a really powerful way. And so, which really, because the, the interesting thing about this series, um, you, had a, you had a pretty decent stretch, long stretch of time where we were pursuing totally separate storylines. It was like Jimmy's storyline and it was the Mike or then it became the Mike slash cartel storyline, you know? And it seemed like they were just operating on separate tracks for a very long time. Oh, Mike and Jimmy, you know, intersect briefly and then they don't again for, you know, whatever. But, and then it started to come together, you know, when you're, you know, when you're with season four, but season five and, you know, it really kind of, you know, just intertangled. And that's when you end up with with episodes like a bag man, like Bad Choice Road, like something unforgivable. You know, so for me right now, I'm I think I'll go with season five. Again, you're right. If I, I'm at some point later on, maybe I'll do a rewatch. 
I might change my mind because I obviously I love season six, but I think it's a complete season. Um, and, and the balance of it, uh, especially, uh, I think season, season, I, I feel like season five to better call Saul in a lot of ways is like season four to breaking bad. It's kind of, it's kind of like that kind of feel to me, I think, if, if that makes any sense. Cause I think season four is usually my favorite season of breaking bad, as great as a lot of the stuff in season five is. But I think it's the, the season just before it where it's like, was like, ooh, it's just the best season. Yeah. And I think, I think if we think about what we love about the show, um, season five, we still had the, ha- the Howard Hamlin we loved. We still had Nacho. You know, a lot of the people that made this special in a way that, that no one was sure this show could be special were sort of at the top of their game in season five. And then, you know, because the game was ending and pieces had to come off the board, it's sort of unfair to hold that against the creators right now because we just finished it. Um, but season five was when every piece was in motion and we were just dying to know how all these pieces were going to connect, how the game was going to play out. And it was, it was just, to, to me, that was peak excitement and peak wonder. It, I almost wish I could go back and watch it again with fresh eyes and forget everything. Nice. All right. So next, um, now I am obviously considering how problematic even asking best season was. I am certainly not going to be asking, you know, about the best episode. I think that's an unfair question. Plus, I think if we really think about it, we're all going to end up with probably a variation of the same episodes anyway. There might be some differences here and there, yeah. you know, but pretty much, you know, you're going to hear Bad Choice Road a lot. You're going to hear Chicanery yep. a lot. You're going to hear, you might hear uh, Plan and Execution a bunch. Of, uh, I'm going to skip that. Yep. It's Plus, you know, no, maybe that, that would be something I think would make more sense after doing a rewatch and really seeing them all, you know, back to back to back. And then you can really evaluate them like we did with Breaking Bad, for example. However, I'm going to zero in on the finale because that's what this podcast was primarily supposed to be about. And we're all, to whatever degree, we're all fairly seasoned or, you know, some of us old fucks, extremely seasoned uh, TV viewers. Um, So we have our appreciation for any number of really great series finales over the years. And we, we know the obvious selections. There are some that we might disagree on, but whatever. The one we just watched this week, we either we've watched it once or twice, or in my case, one and three quarters times. Um, do you think it actually does rank among the best finales? I mean, I'm not saying it has to be the best, but do you think, you know, and without, again, I'm not asking anyone to have a specific ranking. I don't expect anyone to have a little index card in their pocket with, you know, numbers five through one, whatever. But you have a, you always have a general idea of what your, your favorites were. Whether it be whatever number, your 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 three or your five favorite, whatever. Do you think that th- what you just saw this week would crack that list? Do you need more? T- maybe you need more time to consider it. You know, like like we were talking about before. That's possible as well. As well, I I was just curious because you know the obvious ones. You know, you know the shield, six feet under, maybe even Breaking Bad. You know, whatever. Does this? get to be in that conversation do we think it deserves it 
And do we think it, it might actually, you know, bypass any any of the other uh, obvious candidates that people always talk about? Jamie, you look the most attentive when I was saying all that, so I'm going to go to you first on this one. I think I could comfortably put it within the realm of my favorite finales, um, simply because it is. It, it might not have all the bells and whistles and flashiness and, and high peak excitement of a lot of finales, um, but it is probably one of the most satisfactory um, that I've that I've had. I don't feel like, oh, I wish they would have done that, and oh, wouldn't it have been cool if they would have done that? And what are, you know, there's none of that. Like I am from top to bottom, a hundred percent in line and satisfied with what we had. And it felt endearing. I care about it. And it, and I think, I think it was, it's just a solid piece of work and it, it definitely belongs in, in my list. Excellent. One of the other gentlemen like to uh, pipe in now. I, I definitely feel it's, it, it, it's going to end up ranking fairly highly for me. It just kind of feels like, the more time I spend thinking about it, the more it seems to be holding up to scrutiny and like the more like layers I seem to be like uh, unpeeling from, uh, from it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, so like, for example, like the breaking bad finale, I was never like a huge fan of. I watched it a couple times since then and I think it's fine, but when I watch it, there's no like new relevant revelations that I'm finding there. Uh, you know, and I'm not like, you know, bashing it. I don't think it's terrible, but it just isn't something that, you know, work for me and like, like this seems to uh, be doing. So it's just, there's just a lot going on. Some of it's somewhat ambiguous. Some of it's, you know, super complicated. Uh, uh, that's the tale of whose book was that? But other than that, uh, I, I, I think that it, it's gonna, it'll, it'll be one of those things that just stand at the test of time. And I don't think there's going to be uh, a lot of ways we find to like, end up like just, we're not going to find a lot of stuff to, to pick it apart. Not that we're trying to, but you know, there's certain things that might necessarily uh, not rub us the right way, and then it'll just that'll grow and grow. But I just don't see that really happening with this. So, so that reminds me. So about the book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'll close out the uh, the opinions before Scott and say I, it will rank there for me for a couple of reasons. When the when it was over. Uh, it somehow felt inevitable that this is how it would end, yet nobody knew how it would end. Um, it, it made perfect sense that it ended that way, but nobody saw it coming exactly the way it did. Uh, and I will say that more so than any finale I've watched in a long time, I've thought a lot about this. Like, it sat with me and stayed in my brain and, you know, several days later, I still find myself thinking about it. When Breaking Bad was over, it was bittersweet because I was losing the show. And it was so uh, such an amazing show. And I really liked the finale probably more than Dan based on what he said. But, um, but you know, I sort of processed that and it was I just sort of grieved the loss of a show. Um I'm really grieving the loss of the characters and the, this universe and thinking about what they meant and what they meant to each other and how that relates to me. And uh, I think this was a deeper show than most 
things I've ever watched. And uh, it it's really stuck in my brain in a way that few things do. So I think it, it will be up there for me. And I think Dan nailed it that there's a, a complexity to it and a, a layering to it because it's not about set pieces or action. It's about characters and people and all the ways that we interact with bounce into damage each other. And uh, so I, I'm, you know, I, it, it will be there for me, I think in the final calculus. Hmm. Okay. Um, interesting, interesting, all, all very interesting takes and by interesting, compelling, uh, all worthwhile. Nicely done guys. Um, me, uh, since we mentioned breaking bad finale a few times, I guess I'll get into that as well. When I talk about it overall, um, I probably will put it pretty high up. I, I don't have any specific number designations in my mind. I don't have for any. I only have, I only say what my favorite one is and I never say, here's number two, three, four, except for some blog I wrote a long time ago. And there was only three of them. Um, but what I will say is, um, you have shows that have dominant characters, but they're very plot driven. And when you speed towards the finale, the overriding question is what the outcome is going to be, how, what will happen. Um, so you have shows of that nature. That's, that's the shield. That's that, that was what people, some people thought the Sopranos was when in fact, the, 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 the funny thing was like, eh, it really wasn't that after all. Um, you, you never listened to anything David Chase ever said. Um, Breaking Bad and, and obviously, and I, I think you can kind of guess I'm not exactly agreeing with a little bit of what was said, but I understand it because it's, it's an opinion. It's a take on it. I get that. Um, I always said why I think Breaking Bad is such an amazing show is because it was, it's the show that has the best synthesis of both plot and character. So when you got to that final episode, yes, there, there were significant parts of the episode that were about the Walter White character. And we got that in like the scene with Skylar and things like of that nature. But overall, it's a plot driven finale of him coming in to deal with the Nazis to eventually to save Jesse and to, and to close and to, and to basically bookend and close the story out as much as possible. Um, whereas better call Saul, all the major, all the truly major story points, the questions, generally speaking, they had been answered already. The biggest thing was, oh, Gene's on the run. Well, yeah. Well, once he knew that, I was like, okay. Well, Gene's going to get arrested. Did, did, does anyone think at the end, at the end of the previous episode he's not getting arrested? We don't think he's going to go down in a hail of bullets. That's not the nature of him, this show, or the crimes, or whatever. We figure he's going to be arrested. It's just a matter of how that all shakes out. This is a very character-driven episode. It's about him, and those flashbacks are about are about him and coming to grips with what he was, what he is, and what he's going to be. You don't see a lot of character-driven finales. That's rare, and that's what I think really separates this from most other finales that we'll ever talk that we've ever seen or talk about. That's what puts us way different than, than Breaking Bad or Lost or, or The Wire or any of those kind of shows. This is very much about 
character. And when we talked about, when you talked about peeling back the layers when you watch it, absolutely, absolutely. And what they do throughout this episode is they're, you're also, you're peeling back the layers of who Jimmy McGill really is. Because we just peeled back the layers of Gene to Saul to all the way back to Jimmy all over again. But now it's, it's almost like a chrysalis and it's, he's become a new version. He's become the best version. And it's the, even if we could foresee, it's like what you were saying, Brian, we could foresee a lot of what was going to happen, but not the, exactly the way it plays out. You know, our, our friend of the podcast and AMC employee made the joke about how many people he's seen on Reddit who were like close to, you know, had, had guesses that were all, all almost there, almost there. I think we all had like, we all had little pieces of what we thought were going to happen and that we were right about. No one had the entire picture. And I think that's why it ended up being such an ultimately satisfying finale for, for somebody. There are a few people who didn't like it, but you know what? There's a few people who don't like anything. Who cares? Um, so I don't know. I, I, right now, I, I mean, I, I was just watching it a little while ago before we started recording and I was just adoring what I was watching all over again. I was adoring the way it's shot. I was adoring the choices that the actors were making. I was adoring the fact that so much of it is in freaking black and white. Uh, I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not saying it'll be my number one choice overall, but it's definitely going to, it definitely belongs among the best TV finales I've seen in the last 25 years. So yeah, absolutely. All right. So, the, the, the last thing, and we do not have to, because of how late it is in the podcast already, and because I know how tiresome this topic might be for some of us, I suspect at least one of us, but apparently it, it seems to come up everywhere, and it gets addressed in articles and podcasts and blah, 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 yeah, so, and we keep putting, we've been, we've mentioned it a bunch of times on this show, podcast, what's <laughs> the show? <laughs> on our podcast and we kept saying we got to wait till it's over we got to wait till it's over hey it's over (laughs) so there's been this little debate that's always bounced around breaking bad versus better call Saul. knowing from the outset it's stupid to get into the comparison thing i understand that i don't disagree with that but it, 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 but because I can't, there are not two shows that you can more easily compare and have fun with showing the differences and the similarities. And because they're both cut from the same universe and they're so interdependent now that we've seen them both in their entirety, they're so interdependent upon one another. I think you can't help but resist, can't resist, but doing at least some level of a comparison. Now, I'll wait till the end. You can, I think we all can probably guess what I'm probably going to fucking say anyway. So you, I think you three might be a bit more predictable. I know he'll probably get all annoyed at me. But <laughs> so if you were comparing the two, what's your take here? I mean, and again, you don't have to say one is better than the other. It's totally fair. It's like, I don't want to do that. I could say this one does this better, this one does whatever, however you want to address it. But you know, people, it, it's the thing that you see the more than anything else. So we, and we've been kind of hinting at it all along. So let, I think we should yeah, just do it. Yeah. So you spoke, so you get to talk first, Jamie. <laughs> um, 
Okay. If if I were going to put the two things on a scale or weigh them, I'm I'm I've got to dissect just a little bit here. I think as a television show itself, just a story television show, I think Breaking Bad is just a bit above Better Call Saul. However, the two shows are kind of like um, comparing two paintings or two artists' work, even though it's the same world and we've got the same artist at hand. But it's kind of like comparing like American Gothic to like number five Jackson Pollock. Like it's one is about the the story you see, the story you see, the characters. It's its, its own solid thing. But the other thing is more about technique. So... You have Breaking Bad, you have the story, you have great character writing, you have great drama, you have moments of comedy, you, you have all these wonderful things that come together just it, just so, so well, so clean, so well. But now you're going to take this world that already exists, you're going to pluck one character out of this world and create an entire world that wraps around that world, and you have to do it in a way that seems genuine, you're going to have to continuously throw bits of information to the viewers and the fans without it becoming something as bad as pandering. You have to write things that they don't see coming, even though we already know the past and the present in most of this storyline. And you have to do it in a way that is beautiful in a way that separates it from Breaking Bad. So Breaking Bad, we've talked about the camera shots and all these fun little things that they do that they, they pull over into, into Better Call Saul. It's the same, same kind of thing. The, the, the camera work tells a story. But the story that we're getting with Saul is done almost more visually, I think, than Breaking Bad it does. I think that we see more of that. Um, and they take a little bit more risks with the artistic flares that they use in Saul. So at the end of the day, you have one type of story, you have another type of story. I don't want to say that they are equal be be because that's dumb and boring. I think, I do think that, like I said, as a show, Breaking Bad's just a, just a touch, just a touch on top of a better call Saul, but I think that they are close enough. That's why I use the painting reference. So much of which is better is going to be completely perspective of the person viewing it. Alright. Fair enough. Which which one of the gentlemen would like to speak next? I think they're equal. Okay, that's all. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> um I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to do the Vince first in a very juvenile way. Um, I'm going to marry uh, Better Call Saul. I'm going to fuck Breaking Bad and I'm going to kill El Camino. <laughs> I. Um, <laughs> wow. I think, can that just be the end of the podcast? I don't think anybody can. <laughs> It's great. I love it. I love it. Brian, you I, always have a way with words. You really it's do. Uh, 
it's one of the, those things that's kind of hard for to for me to say because like the the same people are pretty much did both shows and those people have became more skilled over the years so with like on the technical aspect of yeah, it yeah of course it's going to be better um just for the most part the you know the writers have learned some things the editors have learned some things whatever and maybe not necessarily better but there's just certain things that just will be better because they're just more experienced now um the, um, I do think, I mean, they both had pretty much the same amount of time to like tell their story. Uh, uh, Better, uh, Better Call Saul had 63 episodes and Breaking Bad had 62 episodes in a movie. So they're pretty much, uh, you know, line up fairly close uh, with their uh, with the amount of time that they used. Um, but at, at the end of the day, if I like had to choose which show I would get more enjoyment out of watching and I'm 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 the kind of guy that even though there's seven thousand shows coming out every fucking week and people do attempt to watch all of them for some reason, I do a lot of rewatches. And if I if I had to like just make a like a gut reaction as to which show which show I would rewatch next, I, I you know I think Better Call Saul will end up being it, even though the stupid bastards didn't get uh, Bill Burr back on the show, which is going to be my criteria uh, for. Uh, four things i think just when push comes to shove the just the, the story being a little bit more offbeat a little bit less predictable in some ways um and just kind of like you know the protagonist is less less unlikable than the unbreaking bad um i just you know sorry yeah, yeah. So, so. truth yeah. I, I, I would i'll elaborate just for a second on what i said and that is I think that when I watch both of these again in the future, that Breaking Bad is... You have to acknowledge Better Call Saul doesn't exist without Breaking Bad. And I don't know if if Better Call Saul came first if Breaking Bad happens. It could. I, I don't know. But Breaking Bad was such a tour de force that, of course, there was room for, for Better Call Saul to happen. Um so I think you have to acknowledge the importance of Breaking Bad. And I'll be interested to see how I feel when I watch them both again. I will say this. The thing that intrigues me, and if you told me right now I had to choose one to watch again, I would watch Better Call Saul again because it's more layered and it's it's more character. You're, yeah, um, you'll find more. Uh, but I'll say this. Um, the impressive thing to me is you picked uh, the the thing that makes me lean toward better call Saul is when we go into the bench on breaking bad the the main line characters are super awesome and we have some minor characters that come in including Saul that are great but I don't know I've ever seen a show develop the the scope and the number of characters that better call Saul has uh, that that gave what would otherwise be bit characters in a show like depth and yeah. uh, arc story arc that uh, that th- they just fully realized characters in a way that few shows ever have. So I I'm I, I'm leaning that way, but Breaking Bad was pretty freaking awesome and is my number one show so if this knocked it off the the rails uh you know it, it's yet to be determined 
but you know, kudos to both of them. And let's let's just be honest, kudos to Cranston and Odenkirk because without leads that could carry that kind of weight, neither of these shows work. And you know, Odenkirk was great playing the clown. Who know he could play all this other stuff, and he really killed it. So, so that's my final word. It kind of it's kind of like the the Better Call Saul almost feels like a like a synthesis of Breaking Bad and Mad Men, but it leans more towards Mad Men, where it's a little bit less flashy. You know, there's some business yeah. going on, and just the characters are have a little bit more room to breathe, like because there's less, uh, you know, less hectic uh, stuff going on. But but there's not, but like you know, Breaking Bad's an A plus show, so I'm not like bashing it. It's just how I, how I see it. That's right. That's what I mean. I'm here for it. I'm here to be the vanguard for Breaking Bad anyway. So, uh, great, great perspective, all. Um, the only, my only pushback at all before I get into my own thing, it's not really a pushback. It's just because I've heard that bef- it's something someone said I've heard before. Um, so I'm going to just push back on it a little bit. Um, something Brian said about the um, stable of characters and and then so and, and the depth given whatever. A um, couple of things on that. Uh, number one, one of the things that and I, again, I love Better Call Saul. We know that from from day one, you know. But one of the, a weakness of the show when you look at the it really more the first couple seasons was they knew the realization was okay we can't build the show around this one character of I guess Jimmy McGill the way we could build Breaking Bad around Walter White there's just as much as I love there's just not enough there that's why we were having split storylines for two seasons, where most episodes he was only in half the episode, quite often. But it gave, but 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 made the show better. It was that it gave you 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 needed to incorporate these other characters and have them play more significant parts than you might have had some support lower tiered supporting players on Breaking Bad, because. As much as I, I mean, again, I I've loved Odenkirk for thirty years, and I've loved this all Goodman character and all the version of whatever. But at least in the in the for earlier seasons, it wasn't a strong enough character to hold all the weight himself. That's what remember for a while there. It felt like it was the Saul and Mike, or excuse me, the Jimmy and Mike show. You know, and that was the way they they went about things. You didn't really see that very often on Breaking Bad. You'd have the occasional episode that kind of may, might have uh, rotated a bit more around Jesse. Usually it was when Jesse was having a really bad day. <laughs> but, you know, out of what were there, 62 episodes, if I said, I'm pretty sure about 57 to 59 of them were, you know, the primary focus of those episodes was around Walter White, it probably was. That's just, it's just the nature of the structure of the show. So that's why I only have an issue with that because it's like, well, it's that's the nature of the show. On top of the fact, because it was a synthesis of both plot and character driven, it's 
and here's the, here's the trick of Breaking Bad, and one of the reasons I do think it's as brilliant a show as it is, is you sometimes you could be so focused on the intensity and the plot and what's going on, you might not be realizing you're actually getting a lot of character in all those scenes as well. So, I, like I said, my pushback on it is only because. I'm, if I start counting through all the characters on Breaking Bad, we we could see that way. It's like, well, it turns out to be more than just one or two. You know, it's not just Walt. It's not just Jesse. There's, there's Hank. We don't give Skyler enough credit because it was all the anti-Skyler sentiment out there, which I was inexplicable. And then there's these idiots online. Yes, I'm calling them idiots. They're not idiots for picking Better Call Saul over Breaking Bad. That's fine. They're basing that choice on things like comparing Kim to Skyler. It's like, no, they do not they do not play the same type of role on the two different series. You cannot compare those two. It doesn't make any sense. If you're gonna compare it if you're gonna compare Kim to someone on Breaking Bad, you're better off comparing her to Jesse, maybe, than Skylar. Are you comparing them just I'm because just, they're both female? That's ridiculous. I'm just gonna go on the record and say that Skylar's season two out, I loved. So they're all stupid for not loving Skylar because she's actually pretty cool. Yeah. But there, there, there's just uh, and, and 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 what's interesting is that the characters, it's kind of like what you were saying, Brian. Is like you don't have one without the other, and of course, and and that's not. A, and I will say right from the outset, that is not a reason to pick Breaking Bad over Better Call Saul. It's like what I was saying to you guys in the chat before we had our podcast. You don't pick Alien over Aliens because you don't have it. You don't pick Godfather over Godfather because of that. That's not the, that can't be the reason. You can say that's true, and it is, but that can't be the reason why you pick it over it, is what I'm trying to say. What was I going to say? I kind of derailed my own little thought there. What a shocker. This is what happens when I do it off without notes in front of me. Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I got it. So it's just. Yeah. Let me just get into this thing overall. I don't want to. Let me just get to. Again, it wasn't what you were saying was wrong. I'm. I would just. My own pushback on it is. Oh, yeah. Now I know what I was going to say. It's. Yeah. I love the fact that we got to know and develop the Mike character so much more on Better Call Saul. And we got to know more and see more of Gus Fring. And that last moment with him in that restaurant told us maybe more about Gus Fring than we had seen in the previous couple seasons or in Breaking Bad altogether. But it's almost, but it's almost kind of a cheat because we already got a really significant helping of them on Breaking Bad. I love all the Mike scenes on Better Call Saul, but is there a scene I like of him that's better than him doing that the the half measure story on Breaking Bad? I don't know that I do. I don't know. I don't know if I can say that. It's you know, it, it's a difficult one. The two shows look they're different shows that have different challenges and different themes, and you know we we've talked about it throughout the extent of, of Better Call Saul. There are any number of parallels. They both dealt with watching a transformation of a person as, you know, they kind of lose their soul, but they both resolve quite differently, which probably does make a world of difference. You know, Better Call Saul, with the exception of a few episodes here and there, mostly in this final season, that's a show I would say was always set on a low simmer, rather than the intense burn that one got from a lot of the Breaking Bad episodes. Doesn't make it better or worse, it just makes it different. The word challenge, I think, is what plays the most significant part with both of these series. 
The challenge of Better Call Saul was on the writers, was on Gilligan and Gould and everybody else, that you were going to take a somewhat lower-tiered supporting character, one that was most often played as sardonic comic relief than anything else on the previous show, and build a series around him, as well as taking... Let's not forget, they also took a few other characters from that series and whatever. But to build a show where you had already met their end, you knew how it was going to end up, how do you attract and then maintain an audience's interest? That was the challenge of that show. And that's, and, and that, and when people say that what's made it a harder show to put together and make than Breaking Bad, I was like, you know what? You're right. What they, they met a challenge. People, there were a lot of critics when, before Better Call Saul even premiered, who were doubting that it really would work. They were wrong. So in that sense, and it had the far bigger obstacle to overcome than anything. The biggest obstacle Breaking Bad had to overcome was getting picked up by AMC in the very first place, since everybody else was turning it down at the time when they were for, when Gilligan was first trying to sell the damn show. The challenge of Breaking Bad is not on the writers. The challenge is on the viewer. I've said a number of times. It's a series that constantly challenges the viewer to consider and reconsider how you see and how you feel about not just one, but a number of characters. That is incredibly difficult and risky to do throughout the course of a series because you're dealing with the fear of putting off an audience, the, uh, the worry of alienating viewers. It's very real and you can wreck a series and people will abandon a series for for things like that ask anyone who's a fan of a, sh a show like say rescue me a few seasons in they make a horrible decision with a character half the viewers including this one here left that show think about people the early defenders of pete campbell certain point in that show mad men lost some viewers you know certainly lost some fans because of some feelings about pete campbell we didn't feel that way but a lot of other people did it's a very hard line to follow and yet the series pulls it off. Didn't matter if you were rooting for or against Walter White at the end. And even when you get within that finale, there are a lot of people whose feelings changed within the course of an episode. But the thing with Breaking Bad and the thing with Better Call Saul, what they both have in common, neither of them ever felt manipulative, which is something you can often accuse even the greatest visual storytellers of the last few generations, your Spielbergs and so on, of being. Neither for either show, Gilgan, Gould, whatever, wherever, I never felt I was being manipulated by them. So at the end of it, it's kind of like what, what Jamie was saying. But I, I, look, I can't in good conscience put Better Call Saul over Breaking Bad. I, I, I can't do it. It's not going to happen. I am the type of idiot who does, does monitor and keep a ranking in his mind. I will tell you right now where, break, where Better Call Saul ranks. Better Call Saul is my number three show now. It's Breaking Bad. It's Mad Men. It's Better Call Saul. It knocked the wire down to four. Sorry, wire. You needed a, if if your fifth season was better, maybe you would have stayed in number three. <laughs> better Call Saul is now my third favorite TV drama of all time, and that's that's my that's my final answer. That was right. very that was very detailed. Had good supporting. Uh, um, documentation, so we'll we'll accept that answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that from the legal eagle here. <laughs> uh, and I cut out half what I wanted to say because <laughs> anyway. 
Okay. Um, I'm going to start the wrap-up now. Obviously, if there's anything else to say, there's still time to say it, but I want to get that wrap-up on the record so we can start closing this show out. Everybody out there, if you enjoyed this podcast, and I dearly hope you did, you will enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page as well. It's the Serious TV Drama Podcast page. Like the page and join the conversation about shows. Hey, like Breaking Bad, even like Better Call Saul. Wait, should have been the other way around. Never mind. You know what I'm talking about. Where can you find us? You already found us, but if you need to find us again, pretty much you can find us wherever podcasts are found. <laughs> you can tell there's nothing written for this fucking part. You know, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, uh, Spotify, and so on. Oh, did I mention that I that I, that someone clued me in, into this web, pod, this gigantic global podcast tracking website, which claims that our podcast is in the top five percent globally? I think that's a marketing ploy. I don't think that's true at all. There's no way that's that's impossible. But if you want to get with the rest of the world and check out all of our podcasts, you can find all 362 of them at stvdpodcast.podbean.com. The only thing I know is like like I was looking at I was looking at some stuff on YouTube. And now I know for a fact that the YouTube numbers do not feed into other places. So, like, they are separate. And I just discovered, oh, um, Brian, I, I've been, you know, I, I've mentioned that I've been trying to not uh, avoid any legal issues with any things we use on the podcast anymore. I, I, I think I tried, once we were, like, finished with, like, Perry Mason, I started, like, you know, that's when we had, you know, Jamie's husband did the, the themes and trying to whatever. Apparently... There's something I did use in a podcast I did with you. I guess it was the um, the Peacemaker and Doom Patrol one or something. There was some little thing I used as a transition element. And I swear to God, I went on YouTube and I used something that said it was royalty-free. But apparently there's a claim against me. And I went and checked it out. I was like, going, then why is it listed here as royalty-free? I mean, again, we're not monetized, so it doesn't matter. But it's like it's like it's it's a clean record, and all of a sudden, blip. Just anyway. Anyway, I just thought I'd ramble about that there. If you you know have, what? You know what? Six seasons from now, you'll end up in prison, Scott. <laughs> Probably. Eighty-six years, and I. Good behavior. All right. So you can email us if you like. You know, Brian emails us here at stvdpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram. Uh, we go by Serious TV Drama, all is one word there. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at stvdpodcast. That's stvd as in Serious TV Drama. I do, I do, and this is the only time for me to say this, but I, th I think it would be awesome if they make a Better Call Saul movie that's just like a documentary where the filmmakers make a movie, like the film students are now filmmakers, and they make a movie where Kevin Costner plays uh, Saul Goodman, and I think that'd be really cool. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I'll, I will pass that idea along to our friend Kevin and see what he's, he's actually been do He's actually one of the producers of the, the current... Uh, web series which involves uh the film crew from better call saul uh they got the, the college kids whatever um so, I, so he's actually one of the people uh, on that it's pretty cool okay if you're listening i'll give you, I'll give you free chicken once a month for life if you get you on the fucking movie so <laughs> oh <laughs> I think it was. I think I saw a poster. Was it like Better Fuel Huel or something like that? I, saw, I think I saw a poster for it. Okay. Um, yeah. It, so 
I, I, again, I might be doing my own thing, and I, I've hinted at what it might be before. It'll 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 be related to uh, the eighties. Anyway, never mind that. So I want to thank the co-hosts here, uh, from the one who was with me side by side from the very start to the two who hitched a ride later on and made it a much better ride. Actually, thank the three of you so much. I will let you all have your last words before I uh, bring it to a close. So uh, you all. Go around the room and make your goodbyes and such. Thanks. All I'm right. Not- well, I'm no. going to interrupt Dan. You're going to interrupt me. And uh, listen, guys, years ago, I was just a fan of the show. And then you were like, hey, why don't you come on here and chat a little bit about this show? And uh, there's a quote about teams that I want to uh, I want to say, and that's a group becomes a team when each member is sure enough of himself and his contribution to praise the skill of others. And joining this little group and making it a team and everybody learning from each other and uh, laughing at each other's mistakes and enjoying some fantastic television over the years has been has been good fun. So thanks for having me. I appreciate you. I was just gonna I'll say. Let, <laughs> I want to interrupt Dan too. Wow, it's, Dan, you should go last. Thank these fuckers for joining us, and they won't stop interrupting me. Three hundred sixty-two fucking podcasts. We still can't fucking do this shit. You should go last, Dan, because you know we're going. Yeah, you, you should go right before Scott because you guys are partners. So, I, I just want to say that that. I, Unintentional comedy aside, I really appreciate you all inviting me. I've enjoyed this. I enjoy talking to you in the last couple of years with what the world went through when we were stuck inside and able to watch some TV and talk about stuff. It's It's been great. Um, I appreciate your minds, but more so I appreciate your hearts. And uh, thank you for... Thank you for sharing a platform you didn't have to share with me to talk about something that we all love. So thanks to everybody who's listening. Jamie, Dan, Scott, I love you. And this is not goodbye. It's only signing off. Well, so Scott, I want you to wait like maybe three seconds until I want to start talking here and then just start talking. Why so was Dan Dion on the line with him? <laughs> yeah, so, yes. Thanks for joining us. It's been fun. This is goodbye. Fuck you, Dan. So, no, no, it, it's it's been a lot of fun. So thanks, thanks for joining us. It's been cool, good fun to talk about this stuff. So, it's good, good stuff. Yay! All right, so it's on me. So, um, before we get to being played out by, as I mentioned about three hours ago, Brian's mournfully lovely soul composition. Strikes me at the resonant nature of that music, and in fact, this episode is of heartaching regret. Um, I mean that we said earlier. I mean, the main themes was one of acknowledgement, acceptance of regrets. You know, regrets about a few, whatever. But to quote a great work of literature, as well as something that was quoted at the end of another classic spinoff that someone here knows oh so well. In the end, what we regret most are the chances we never took. He said that on Frasier, in case anyone didn't remember that. I'm glad that we took... I, I thought I, that, I did that for you, Dan. I'm glad that we actually took the chance over seven years ago to cover this series. It could have even easily been a one-and-done kind of a deal or one season only or whatever. 
What we realized right off the bat with the creators behind the scenes and the talent on the screen that it couldn't have been anything other than it's all good, man. And now it's all gone. I've loved having the chance to podcast with all three of you. Some of you more than others at times, but (laughs) it's been fun regardless. Um, It's probably been one of my main social connections over the last few years, especially in the era of COVID. So I want to say thank you to all three of you. Um, And other than that, and again, in the spirit of the show that I just made reference to, and because I know my most longest time co-host will appreciate more than anybody else, I will end by saying, good night, Albuquerque, we love you. Thank you.